This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is episode 236 of the program. Today is Friday, April 10th, and before we get started, as usual, I want to take some time to thank all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members for signing up to support us this very week or increasing their monthly pledge, and that includes Alvin Charles, Annette Kowalik, Bert D. Raymaker, Elizabeth Domingo, Daniel Rodriguez, Daphne Brule, Dave Osborne, Garrison Rucker, Glenn Barnett, JPK0721, Linda Edwards, Manda Slinker, Mona Carmona, Rachel Jackson Ward, Sally Laporte, Selena Guzman, Sonia Merton, and Theodore Pulver. So thank you so much to all of these kind souls. If you'd also like to support the show, you can go to humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport and uh, join the independent progressive media revolution um, if you can. So uh, we have a show for you today and that's the best that I can do to describe it. It's not a great show. It's a relatively uh, overwhelming and uh, sad show, but nonetheless, We've got a show for you. We'll talk about celebrity shit libs who think they know more about politics than us peasants. And this includes Alyssa Milano, who accuses Bernie Sanders supporters of weaponizing Me Too allegations against Joe Biden. Whoopi Goldberg, who puts her foot in her mouth and switching gears, will talk about a different celebrity, Joe Rogan, who said something that led to Bernie Sanders being attacked. We'll talk about the people in Bernie Sanders' campaign that pressured him to drop out. And we'll talk about his decision to suspend his campaign. We'll also look at the role Obama played in influencing this decision. We'll look at Bernie's 2020 goodbye message, the Wisconsin primary and health risk that it posed to voters, and why Republicans don't care, and how Joe Biden is now pretending like he didn't encourage people to risk their lives to vote. And new data shows that COVID-19 is disproportionately taking black lives. We'll talk about that and we'll look at the religious wackadoos who aren't taking COVID-19 seriously and in turn, who are endangering everyone else in the process. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today's episode. Let's just, uh, let's get to it. It's going to be a long ride. Celebrity surrogate for Joe Biden, Alyssa Milano has been conspicuously silent when it comes to the sexual assault allegations against Joe Biden by Tara Reid. But she finally broke her silence after weeks of people trying to shame her into speaking out. And she spoke about this on the Andy Cohen show on Sirius Satellite XM radio. And her reason for remaining quiet, it's absolutely humiliating for her because it shows that she's intentionally being obtuse in order to protect Joe Biden. And I'll tell you why that's the case. But first, we'll listen. Listen, the other night, I logged on to Twitter. And typically, yeah. my Twitter experience these days is I go on and I look at what's trending just to see, okay, what? It's basically a way of telling me what people are talking about. And right. you were trending. Right. That's, what, that's what, how I do it, too. Yeah. What ha What did you do that you were trending? <laughs> um, so it's actually, it's actually quite a serious reason. 
okay. I think. Um, okay. So I've been, I endorsed Joe Biden. Okay, good. And there have been accusations against Joe um, about sexual uh, about a sexual assault. Right, and people and were saying, "How so, can you do that?" Because so you're... I was, um, I have not publicly said anything about this. Um, if you remember, it kind of took me a long time to publicly say anything about about Harvey as well, okay. because I believe that um, even though we should believe women and that is an important thing and what that statement really means is like you know for so long the the go-to has been not to believe them so really we have to sort of societally change that mindset to believing women but that does not mean at the expense of not um, you know, giving men their due process and, and investigating like situations. I like um, that. And, and giving, you know, it, it, it's gotta be, it's gotta be, it's gotta be fair in, in both directions. Okay. So, you know, I've been very vocal about, um, uh, Biden and my support for, for him. I've known him for a long time and, um, I did do my due diligence, due diligence because part yeah. of it was that, um, and the, the article that sort of stood out to me was that Time's Up uh, decided not to take the case. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know. That was I important did, to you. That, that meant, did, well, maybe there's more to this story here. Right. I did my work and I, and I spoke to Time's Up and I just don't feel comfortable throwing away a decent man that I've known for 15 years yep um, in this in this time of complete chaos without there being um, a thorough investigation yep. I'm sure that um, mainstream media would be jumping all over this um, as well if if you know, if they we weren't in a pandemic uh, oh or if there was more if there was more credible if there was evidence that was if they found more evidence or or through their investigate so i'm just kind of staying quiet about it and yeah because i'm staying quiet about it um you were getting dragged on twitter by bernie bros Right. They're they're calling me hypocritical for for, you know, and saying that I'm a fake feminist and all of this, all of this stuff. And I'm still I'm still trying desperately to to, you know, to stand back and be sort of objective about this, because Mm -hmm. um, I don't want this to, you know, I I sent the Me Too tweet over two years ago. I, I, I never thought that it would be. Um, something that was going to destroy innocent men, right? So notice how she was basically trying to portray herself as the victim because the mean Bernie bros on Twitter were calling on her to speak out. I mean, look, what this tells us is that liberal centrists, they don't actually stand for anything. We thought that they were ideologically aligned with us, at least when it came to you know social issues, but this shows you that they don't care about principles, they don't care about policies, they just care about their team winning. She acts as if it's, you know, weird that she's being called a hypocrite. Maybe it's because you've been the face of this movement. You've been trying to position yourself as the leader of the Me Too movement. 
but you've remained silent because your friend, someone who you endorsed, has been accused of sexual assault. So rather than playing the victim because people are being mean to you on Twitter, maybe listen to them and actually speak up if you want to be taken seriously when it comes to this issue. Now, her main reason as to why she hasn't spoken up is because, well, you know, this must not be that serious of a story if the media is not talking about it. I mean, CNN, MSNBC, they'd be covering this if these allegations were actually credible, right? Except there's two reasons why this logic is uh, wrong. First of all, we're witnessing a global pandemic, so that's all that the mainstream media is talking about, and I don't necessarily blame them for that because this is serious. But second of all, media blackouts, that's all part of the Me Too movement. Because let me remind you that before the Harvey Weinstein story was actually broken, there were successful attempts, coordinated efforts to silence women and kill these stories. And so the point of the Me Too movement, the point of the Time's Up movement, was to send a message to all men in positions of power that it doesn't matter if you have power and political influence and the media on your side, we are going to create an environment for women so they actually feel comfortable coming out and sharing their stories. It doesn't matter if the media covers it up, we are going to be their voice for them if the media won't. It doesn't matter if men in power try to silence them or intimidate them. We've got their backs, hence why we named the movement Time's Up up and me too but yet she's saying well you know since the media isn't vetting the story it must not be true except media is part of the problem media is part of the problem and she knows this she's very much aware of this she's very much aware of you know the biased coverage that fox news you know gave to dr christine blasey ford during the kavanaugh hearings She's very much aware, I hope so, of the biased coverage, uh, or the cover-up, rather, during the Harvey Weinstein story. The media never talked about Jeffrey Epstein until recently, and they still don't give that story the coverage that it deserves. So the media, in the Me Too sense, is a part of the problem. And she's a leader of this movement. She wants to be the face of this movement. In her profile picture, she has the hashtag Me Too there. And yet she's feigning ignorance here, saying, well, you know, the media is not covering it, so it must not be real. Yikes. What an unbelievable fraud you are, Alyssa Milano. You are a fraud and hypocrite. That word isn't doing the situation justice. You're worse than a hypocrite. You're worse than a hypocrite. Now, she then proceeded to um, attack Bernie Sanders supporters because primarily Bernie supporters are the ones who's calling her out. So Crystal Ball tweeted out this clip saying, incredible, Alyssa Milano says she assumes that mainstream media would cover Tara Reid if her claims are credible and that we have to find, quote, balance in Me Too and Believe Women. Don't remember those caveats before. To which Alyssa Milano responded saying, Bernie supporter, right? Oh, so the implication here is that Bernie supporters don't actually care about Tara Reid's allegations. We're just trying to weaponize this issue in order to use it against Joe Biden. Is that really what she's trying to say? That's exactly what she's trying to say. And guess what? That is a talking point that Republicans use against Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. But she's using that here as well. She tweeted out, there is something to the idea that people are going to weaponize Me Too for political gain. Just look at the replies here and look to see who those accounts are supporting in the primary. There always needs to be a thorough vetting of accusations. This is 
exactly what Republicans said when Democrats took the allegations brought forward by Dr. Christine Blasey Ford seriously. Rightfully so. Exactly what Republicans said. How dare you say that these allegations are politically motivated because women have nothing to gain in coming forward. Their lives are destroyed. They're ruined. Christine Blasey Ford, she was forced to move away from her home because of all of the death threats that they received. You know that there's nothing to be gained here by coming out and sharing your story, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that they're 100% credible, but what we're asking you to do using your platform at a minimum is just be responsible and call for the FBI to investigate the situation, get the media to pay attention maybe, so that way the you know authorities actually do feel inclined to look into this. But you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. And now you're using the same arguments against us that Republicans use against Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. Shame on you. And for those of you who uh, forgot, this is what Alyssa Milano said in the midst of the Kavanaugh hearings. You can't pretend to be the party of the American people and then not support a woman who comes forward with her Me Too story. Yeah. So she is a complete and utter fraud, and nobody should ever take her seriously ever again. This person doesn't believe in anything. So I want to show you a clip from ABC's The View with Whoopi Goldberg. I'm assuming that this clip is a couple of months old because all of the hosts are now um, hosting the show from home because of self-quarantine. Uh, but this clip is perfect because it truly encapsulates just how big of a political hack Whoopi Goldberg really is because she ended up embarrassingly putting her foot in her mouth <laughs> when it came to a conversation that they were having about Dr. Jill Biden, Joe Biden's wife. And um, <laughs> she basically revealed that her level of political analysis is very simple. Democrats by default are good no matter what because they're on my team. Take a look. And Dr. Jill becomes a Surgeon General. His wife, yeah, Joe Biden. Joe Biden's wife, because she, you know, she he would to... never do it. But she, she, yeah, she's a hell of a doctor. She's an amazing doctor. I thought she was I a doctor like, and PhD. Yeah, I don't, I don't. Oh, I, don't I could know. be wrong. Maybe I thought she was yeah, a I think she's, she's oh. a teacher, but you know, my whoopee. <laughs> like what a hack! That is embarrassing. That is embarrassing. Dr. Joe Biden, she is a fantastic doctor, one of the best in the world. She actually did my hip replacement surgery, and I was walking after a week. Whoopi, you just revealed to everyone that you're a propagandist. Like, you are willing to lie, even if you don't know anything about someone, so long as you know that they have a D in front of their name, you are willing to do propaganda for them. Like, that is incredibly embarrassing. You have no standards. The only standard is... Is there a D in front of their name? And if so, I'm with them 100%. Why? Like, why do you talk about politics so frequently if you actually don't care, if you don't have a deep political analysis? Like, this is really shameless. You're literally just making something up because you like Jill Biden and Joe Biden. Like, Come on. Now, there is a logical explanation as to why Whoopi Goldberg is such a terrible, entitled person who is also seemingly a compulsive liar. It's because she is literally a Karen. 
As Salam Snow points out, her real name is Karen Johnson. And Whoopi Goldberg, uh, unbeknownst to me, is just a moniker that she uses for her television and uh, movie career. Yeah. So, you know, all the stupid things that she said makes a lot more sense now. She's a Karen. She's mad at Bernie bros because we don't have a manager that she can speak to. Bernie is, I guess, her uh, our manager in her view. But, you know, anything that she says to him doesn't really resonate. So um, she just takes it out on the left because she is committed to her team. Um, but what's weird about this story is that it kind of took a turn for the weird because everyone on Twitter, you know, after this was trending, Dr. Jill Stein was trending, was dunking on Whoopi Goldberg for being an idiot and a political hack. But nobody is denying that Dr. Jill Biden shouldn't represent that doctor title because she has a PhD in education. So yeah, if you have your PhD, you're a doctor, you're not a medical doctor, but you're still a doctor, you get to have doctor in your name. But apparently, the Bernie bros have been accused of attacking Dr. Jill Biden. Now, again, I just want to remind you all that the reason why this was trending in the first place was because we were all making fun of Karen Whoopi Goldberg's stupidity and political hackery. But somehow, the Bernie bros were the ones who got attacked. For example, Alyssa Milano, another Democratic Party hack, tweeted out, Bernie bros attacking Dr. Jill Biden for having a PhD in education is exactly what I'd expect. Y'all need to realize you're part of the problem. Bernie Sanders needs to separate himself from your support. You do more harm to him, his policies, and the country than good. So I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, can you point to a single tweet where a Bernie Sanders supporter is attacking Dr. Jill Biden because she has doctor in her name and she's not a medical doctor? Like, where is this coming from? You see, Alyssa Milano is a propagandist for the Democratic Party. She is another team player just like Whoopi Goldberg, and her team is always right, which is why she is accusing the left of being uh, toxic and doing more harm than good. Let me remind you that Bernie Sanders supporters are disproportionately poor people who are just asking for healthcare and education and to stop the wars, but she says that they're doing more harm than good. Why? Well, because she's personally butthurt because we're calling her out for her hypocrisy. But to the question of where are these attacks on Dr. Joe Biden coming from, I don't know. Now, when you click on that hashtag and you read some of the top tweets, none of them showcase any Bernie Sanders supporter attacking Jill Biden. Cal Penn tweeted, y'all throwing shade because you thought Dr. Biden was a medical doctor. Are really going to lose your shit when you Google Dr. Dre? That's actually pretty clever. Miss Krasenstein tweeted, if you are attacking Dr. Jill Biden for calling herself doctor when she's not a medical doctor, then you are just plain ignorant. Did you ever hear of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.? He wasn't a medical doctor either but he was highly educated like Dr. Biden and unlike you. Veronica McDonald tweeted, Jill Biden has a doctorate. She has every right to be called Dr. Biden. She's not just a medical doctor and quite frankly, from the performance of the current Surgeon General, Dr. Jill Biden might as well be qualified to be Surgeon General. Heck, all of us are. So listen, folks, I think it's very obvious what's happening here. The Bernie bros are being framed in order to deflect, divert attention away from Whoopi Goldberg, excuse me, Karen's stupidity. They're trying to throw Bernie Sanders supporters under a bus. Like, who believes that Jill Biden shouldn't be referred to as doctor? If she has her doctorate, she's a doctor. 
Like, you can make the distinction that she's not a medical doctor, but who is taking issue with this specifically? Like, I was a PhD student before going on a permanent sabbatical to host the Humanist Report, but I mean, like, I absolutely would have wrapped that doctor title in my name because I'm the first person in my family to go to college. So, I just... I don't understand where this is coming from, and I'm not seeing, at least from people in my circle, any examples, not a single one, of them attacking Jill Biden for not being a doctor. This all originated from Karen being stupid and just, you know, uh, talking about how much of a wonderful doctor Jill Biden is without knowing that she's not actually a fucking medical doctor. That's the story. Not Bernie Bros. So I think the fact that Bernie Bros were clowning on Whoopi Goldberg is what they're angry about, but it doesn't matter. Bernie Bros will always be blamed no matter what. If Joe Biden loses to Trump, guess who's going to be blamed? Bernie Bros. If uh, Joe Biden slips and falls, guess who's going to be blamed? Bernie Bros. If Joe Biden shits his pants, guess who's going to be blamed? Bernie Bros. So it doesn't matter what we do, we will always be the scapegoat when it comes to uh, Democratic Party politics. So um, if they want to blame us, I mean, it really doesn't matter. Uh, we all know, we have the receipts, we have the video footage that it's actually Karen who's the one who is the dumbass in this predicament. So, I mean, you can try to deflect, uh, but Karen is the one who thought that Dr. Joe Biden was a medical doctor. So um, if you're going to get mad at anyone, like... You know what? Fuck it. You can get mad at us. It doesn't matter. You're going to be mad anyway, so fuck it. <laughs> this is exhausting. Bernie Sanders is probably the only politician in the history of American politics who can become embroiled in controversy while doing literally nothing. Because over the weekend, a clip from the Joe Rogan Experience podcast blew up, and Bernie Sanders was blamed for this. Why? Well, you'll find out because Joe Rogan is voting for Donald Trump over Joe Biden. And since Bernie Sanders once shared Joe Rogan saying nice things about Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders is the one who we should all be uh, lambasting currently, according to Democratic Party loyalists. So this is the clip that is controversial issue with the democratic party they've essentially made us all morons yeah with this joe biden thing they really have <laughs> they made imagine? us all morons who do we need i mean can, uh, i can't of, vote for that guy i can't vote for him i can't vote for him i can't vote for trump there I would, i'd rather vote for trump than him I, I don't think he could handle anything i mean you're relying entirely on his cabinet like if you want to talk about a an individual leader that can communicate he can't do that and we don't even know what the fuck he's going to be like after a year in office. The pressure of being the president of the United States right. is something that no one has ever prepared for. Right. The only one who seems to be fine with it is Trump, oddly enough. I mean, he doesn't seem to be aging at all or in any sort of decline. You know, Obama, like, almost immediately started looking older. Yeah. George W. almost immediately started well, looking older. I think that older. this is not a change in Trump. You know, it's interesting to me because as I watched this, it became apparent to me that Joe Rogan, theoretically, is the exact type of person who the Democratic Party tells us that they should be winning over. Someone who is ideologically positioned between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, right? You want to win over those voters who kind of opt for Republicans sometimes and Democrats other times, it's not about making sure that the left is satisfied and has someone to vote for. It's not about bringing out non-voters, people like Joe Rogan. That's who the Democratic Party told us 
we have to be winning over, which is why they have to remain so centrist and right-wing on a lot of issues. But yet, when he says, you know what, based on this issue of mental fitness, I'm going to go with Donald Trump, they blame Bernie Sanders. Why? Because he once elevated Joe Rogan's endorsement. Now, people like Joe Rogan, like, I, I don't watch the podcast. I'm not a fan of Joe Rogan, so I don't necessarily know about him. But what I do know about him is that he's very similar to the average voter, right? He has some reactionary right-wing views when it comes to social issues, but here and there, he's relatively progressive when it comes to single-payer healthcare, for example. So he's kind of ideologically all over the place, but I think he's gettable if you provide him with the correct candidate. And Bernie Sanders was able to win him over because Bernie Sanders has a history of saying the same thing over and over again. But Joe Biden can't win him, him over. Why? Well, it's because of mental fitness, because Joe Biden is obviously in cognitive decline. Now, I think that Donald Trump is an idiot, and he's also in cognitive decline. But Democrats managed to find the one person who voters would see is uh, maybe less competent and prop him up all election and tell us that, you know, this is the most electable person and you have to vote for him. You have to vote for him uh, if you want to be Donald Trump. And now that voters aren't necessarily falling for that, at least what we can tell based on this clip, uh, now they're blaming everyone but themselves, which is really, uh, which is interesting. Now, I'm not going to go through all of the outrage, but I'll just share one tweet from a Democratic Party loyalist that I think really encapsulates the uh, broader uh, sense of outrage we got from the Democratic Party establishment. Bakari Sellers tweeted out, Joe Rogan was a great endorsement. I don't understand why we get trounced with black voters. So this is supposed to show how clueless the progressive left is because they're unable to perform with uh, black voters, at least in South Carolina, even though most black voters haven't voted yet. But I'll admit, Bernie Sanders should have theoretically done better. Um, and I don't necessarily know why he didn't do better. We'll have to do an autopsy once this is all over and figure out what he could have done better because clearly he didn't do enough because he didn't win over uh, black voters, disproportionately older black voters, even though he won over younger black voters. But the point is that we don't know what he did wrong specifically, but Bakari Sellers is saying, well, it's because of people like this. Propping up Joe Rogan is part of the reason why, uh, you know, he wasn't able to convince black voters. Except if you're going to base it off of who you're associated with, why would Joe Biden, a former segregationist who has been accused, credibly so, of rape, why is he who propped up Michael Bloomberg, who's a current racist, why, like, why is that not an issue for the Democratic Party establishment? Bernie Sanders sharing the endorsement, the pseudo-endorsement of Joe Rogan, is a bigger issue to the Democratic Party's team than uh, Joe Biden sharing Mike Bloomberg's endorsement and complimenting Mike Bloomberg, who is, I think, a much more egregious figure than Joe, uh, Joe Rogan, right? By their own standards. But yet, do you understand that this double standard is never brought up? It's because there's a separate set of standards that apply to us that they don't hold themselves to. If I were a Democratic Party operative, I would be watching clips like this. I'd be trying to soak up all of this commentary and figure out how we can help 
Joe Biden beat Donald Trump because, I mean, what they're trying to do is, you know, put his wife front and center during live streams in order to hide his cognitive decline, which is obvious. But voters, they look, they they want good policies, but they're not as ideological as everyone else. You know, they voted based on electability. But a lot of people who are like Joe Rogan, who will be voting in 2020, making this binary choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, they're going to base, you know, their decision on things like uh, leader leadership, you know, more abstract qualities like who's mentally fit, you know, things that are difficult to gauge. Uh, now, mental fitness is certainly something that you can gauge, but given the choice between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, I think they're both not capable of being leaders now, but voters are going to making the going to be making these types of evaluations. So rather than lambasting any and everyone who, you know, supported Bernie Sanders and, you know, rather than attacking Joe Rogan, understand that he's not the problem currently. He's not the enemy. It's not Bernie Sanders who's the enemy. So they're going to try to scapegoat Bernie Sanders and his supporters once Joe Biden uh, fails to win them over, if he fails to win them over and loses. But you've got to understand, the writing has been on the wall. Now, this COVID-19 global pandemic has changed a lot, right? We don't necessarily know what's going to happen once this uh, pandemic comes and goes, and then we move on to a global recession. We don't know what's going to happen. Anything can still happen. I'm not going to say that Joe Biden is definitely going to lose, but just judging the low level of enthusiasm, given how Democrats are already having wandering eyes and Cuomo sexual is trending on Twitter. I mean, you're just you're in for a rude awakening come November. So people in the Democratic Party, if they actually care about beating Donald Trump, which they should, they need to be looking at these types of analyses, looking at what people are saying about Joe Biden. And very clearly, there's a lot of issues. So I don't know if he's going to be able to overcome that, but if he's not, then just understand that this is the bed that you made, and now you have to lie in it. The Democratic Party establishment, namely Obama, moved heaven and earth to make sure that Joe Biden became the nominee, and everyone dropped out and coalesced behind Joe Biden. This was after Bernie Sanders had a blowout in Nevada, but the establishment made everything change in a matter of, what, seven to nine days? This was unprecedented. So they wanted to make this happen and they did. They're going to get what they want. So now they have to live with the consequences of choosing someone who is completely incompetent. And not only that, he doesn't bring forward any real policy solutions. So, you know, aside from the fact that he's not going to energize the left, you know, centrist, more moderate types of people like Joe Rogan, they're going to see Joe Biden when they're making this choice between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And they're going to realize, you know, um, if I'm having to choose between this individual who's clearly in cognitive decline and someone who's already president, I'm going to go with what I know. It's not just Joe Rogan who's going to be making this decision. And the tragedy is that it really would be a disaster if Donald Trump did get another four years, because that means four years of the prospect of war with Iran, right? Four more years of worrying about who else he can fill, you know, if another Supreme Court seat becomes vacant. But this is what Democrats did. And the problem is that the disaster that they have, you know, brought upon themselves, it's not them who's going to be suffering from that. It's going to be normal people who bear the brunt of this, of their incompetence. So, I mean, it's just frustrating. They never learn. They never are willing to be introspective, even for a second. It's always blame, 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 play the blame, blame game. And when you're done with that, play a little bit longer. But it's just... <sighs> 
they'll never learn. And um, in four more years, if you think that them losing to Trump again, if that's what happens, is going to give them a sudden change of heart, it's not. They will never change. They have to be forced out of power. That's the only way we will be able to get change. Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers made the correct decision to delay their state's Democratic primaries because in-person voting is not something that should be practiced at a time when self-quarantine and social distancing are of the utmost importance if we actually want to overcome this global pandemic. Except after he made that announcement, guess what happened? Republicans decided to effectively veto that move because the courts weighed in and they said, actually, we think voters should risk their lives to exercise their right to democracy. Because as Alex Seitzwald of NBC News reports, Wisconsin's controversial election is back on for Tuesday and voters will get no extension on the deadline to return absentee ballots despite the coronavirus crisis thanks to two top courts that sided with Republicans on Monday. Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers, a Democrat, issued an executive order Monday afternoon postponing the election to June 9th citing the public health risk, but the Wisconsin Supreme Court hours later overturned the governor, siding with the Republican-controlled legislature that had appealed his order. Later in the day, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of Wisconsin Republicans on a separate issue, voting 5-4 to four along ideological lines to overturn a lower federal court's decision to extend the deadline for absentee balloting. Election officials have faced an unprecedented crush of requests for absentee ballot from voters looking to avoid the polls during the pandemic, so a federal judge Thursday granted voters and officials an extra week to cast ballots and have them counted. But the U.S. Supreme Court rejected that extension, meaning that the absentee ballots received after 8 p.m. Tuesday will no longer be accepted. The four dissenting justices, all on the court's liberal wing, said the decision will result in the massive disenfranchisement of tens of thousands of voters who did not show up in person because of the spread of the coronavirus, but could not cast their absentee ballots in time. So this is absolutely reckless, it's irresponsible, but it's not surprising. Republicans have basically showed their cards. They don't care if people get sick. They don't care if people die. These people are peasants. Their lives don't matter to Republicans. So, you know, after putting pressure on the Democratic governor, he finally listened to people. He took the advice of the health professionals, decided to postpone this primary, and Republicans decided to step in and say, you know what, we think voters should risk their lives. Now, let me remind you what happened the last time when the Democratic Party irresponsibly went on with primaries. In fact, the Republican governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, decided to allow voting to continue. This is what happened after March 17th when people voted on Super Tuesday 3. Broward County poll workers in Florida tested positive for COVID-19. So acknowledge what this is going to cause. This is going to cause sickness and death and suffering. Why? Because uh, these justices don't give a damn about people. Their lives are completely disposable. Now, you can blame Tony Evers to an extent because he should have acted sooner, but at the end of the day, the buck stops with the highest court. They won't even allow for an extension of absentee ballots. That tells you a lot about just how broken our system is. 
This is not democracy. This is voter suppression in its highest form. Because if you're telling people they have the right to vote, but they have to risk their lives to vote, that's not democracy. That is not democracy. In authoritarian regimes, when people are intimidated into voting, we don't call that democracy. So we can't call that democracy in this instance when it happens at home. You should never have to choose between your health and safety and exercising your right to vote. You can extend the deadline for absentee ballots. You can uh, institute vote by mail. They're choosing to not do that because uh, they don't care about people. They don't care that people are going to die because of this. These are Republicans, so if Democratic Party voters die, that doesn't hurt them at all. In fact, they probably think that that's good. They don't care if people die. Human life means nothing to them. Human life is completely disposable. The number one thing that matters to them is capital, is making money, is protecting the profits of large multinational corporations, which is why we saw the Tories in Great Britain talk about herd immunity, which is why Donald Trump for a while was contemplating just sending everyone back to work and, you know, opening up everything again. Now, thankfully, the experts got to him and chose, you know, got him to not do that. So he chose otherwise. But I mean, Republicans don't care about people. This shouldn't surprise anyone. They are a death cult at this point. And I need people to acknowledge how serious this is. We don't live in a real democracy. I don't think you could really argue that we lived in an adequate democracy because, you know, we don't really have that much say over policy outcomes. We barely get to choose you know, um, who wins because we have the media doing nonstop propaganda at the behest of their corporate advertisers. So this is just another nail in the coffin of democracy. And it's really sad. This is serious. So I don't even know what to say in this situation. People are still going to risk their lives to come out and vote. And some people are going to get sick and possibly die because of this. And Republicans just don't care now to be fair democrats don't really care as well tom perez is trying to dissuade states from postponing their primaries right in that last uh, super tuesday three we saw joe biden telling people to come out and vote it was incredibly irresponsible so at the end of the day we have to acknowledge that if we are not allowed to exercise our right to vote free from intimidation free from threats to our lives that is not democracy so whatever happens during this primary the results are automatically invalid. They should be labeled invalid because if thousands upon thousands of people don't feel comfortable voting, then you can't say that a legitimate democracy is taking place because that's that's not happening. So this is morally reprehensible and the blood is on the hands of everyone who greenlit this decision, although saying that is really meaningless because the people who are forcing these people to vote they don't give a damn if they die. They literally don't care. They could not care any less. So I think that a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters knew that the calls for him to drop out would become, you know, increasingly vocal as the primary went on. But I mean, the Democratic Party primary process has effectively been paused because of this global pandemic. States are postponing their primaries. We still have half of the states who need to vote. Um, so, you know, it was important for Bernie Sanders, I thought, to resist those external calls for him to drop out because 
they were always going to call for him to drop out. The media, uh, political operatives in D.C., the Democratic Party establishment and their loyalists, they were always going to call for him to drop out as early as it was convenient to do so. But one thing that I didn't necessarily anticipate were for people closest to Bernie Sanders, his literal team, to start putting pressure on him to drop out when more than half the country hasn't voted yet. Now, do I think that this race is going to change? No. Most likely, Joe Biden is going to win. However, I am very, very much committed to this principle known as democracy, to where even if we know what the result will be, those of us who haven't voted yet, we should be allowed to exercise our right to vote, make our voices heard. Like my niece, who is finally old enough to vote, hasn't had the opportunity to vote for the very first time for someone who she is very enthusiastic to vote for, Bernie Sanders. So it doesn't matter if this is already a foregone conclusion to a lot of people, at least let the rest of the states go and make their voices heard. But now it's gotten so bad that people in Bernie Sanders' team are saying, all right, bud, it's time to call it quits, including his own campaign manager, Faz Shakir. So as Sean Sullivan of the Washington Post reports, a small group of Bernie Sanders' top aides and allies, including his campaign manager and his longtime strategist, have encouraged the independent senator from Vermont to consider withdrawing from the presidential race, according to two people with knowledge of the situation. The group includes campaign manager Faz Shakir and Representative Pramila Jayapal, a top Sanders surrogate and ally, according to the people who spoke on the condition of anonymity to describe sensitive private discussions. Sanders himself has become more open to the prospect of dropping out, according to one of the people with knowledge of the situation and another close ally, especially if he suffers a significant defeat in Tuesday's Wisconsin and primary, which polls suggest Joe Biden will win handily. Beyond Shakir and Jayapal, longtime strategist Jeff Weaver has privately made a case that exiting the race more quickly and on good terms with Biden would give Sanders more leverage in the long run. That's a joke, according to one of the people. The other said Weaver has used a light touch in presenting his case. Weaver and Jayapal did not return calls and messages seeking comment. Shakir declined to comment. Sanders has not made a final decision, the people said, and other close allies have privately urged him to keep running, such as national campaign co-chair Nina Turner, while Representative Rashida Tlaib is also said to favor him remaining in the race. Larry Cohen, a longtime ally who chairs a nonprofit aligned with Sanders, is waging a public campaign for him to stay in until the Democratic National Convention. The Sanders campaign declined to comment on internal deliberations. Wow. So this story is uh, very depressing, to say the least. Oh, and um... Larry David is also calling on him to uh, drop out, and he says everyone must support Joe Biden. So, obviously, you know, I have a lot to say about this. I think that it is uh, not the right thing to do. I've made my case in a different video as to what the benefits are for Bernie Sanders to stay in. I think that for Jeff Weaver to suggest that him dropping out will give him more leverage is delusional, and we should never take Jeff Weaver seriously again with anything he says if he genuinely believes that. But look, you can tell that people closest to Bernie Sanders, they've already checked out. They have already checked out. Faz Shakir, he's already checked out. Because here's the thing. After Super Tuesday, the race was entirely different. 
the race was entirely different. Bernie Sanders was the front runner, and after Nevada, he didn't really need to change anything. He just needed to continue on with that momentum. But when the entire establishment coalesced around Biden because of Obama, that was a new race, and Bernie Sanders needed to adapt. And he never adapted. Now, part of that is Bernie Sanders' fault. Yes, I admit that. But it's also part of his team who's failing to adapt. I'm not including Brianna Joy Gray in this discussion. I think she's doing phenomenal. I'm not including David Sirota. I think he's doing phenomenal. There's a lot of people around Bernie Sanders that are great, and they're ride or die. And they should be if you're part of a campaign, because you shouldn't be in that campaign if it's just a job to you. Like, you should actually believe in what you are campaigning for. Otherwise, what's the point? If, if this is just a job to you, I mean, what's the point? So, you know, after Super Tuesday, to get back to that point, Bernie needed to adapt, and he never adapted. He needed to hit Joe Biden and hit Joe Biden hard. But if anything, he did more damage in saying that he thinks Joe Biden can beat Donald Trump. Now, there was reason to believe that maybe Bernie Sanders didn't necessarily have to change up the strategy because the deck was reshuffled, so to speak, once we all found ourselves in the midst of this global pandemic. Maybe Bernie Sanders just needed to wait it out. Maybe people would realize that all the policies Bernie was campaigning on were the right antidote to the issues that we're facing currently, except that's not happening. They're not any more inclined to vote for Bernie Sanders. It doesn't matter that voters in every single state, a majority of them, say they support Medicare for all. This was about electability. And COVID-19, this hasn't changed that calculus. This hasn't changed their thinking. And because of that, you have to change up the strategy. And it's very clear that Bernie Sanders hasn't changed up the strategy at all. So by remaining in the race, just doing nothing, I think it has its benefits. But it's very clear that Bernie's aggregate team, they don't seem to be playing to win currently, based on my estimation. Now, I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't talk to anyone from within the campaign. I don't, you know, I don't know what's happening internally, but they're not playing to win. Like, what are you doing now? You should still be campaigning. You should be hitting Joe Biden because he's very clearly incompetent. You see Democratic Party voters already looking, you know, uh, at Andrew Cuomo as the next president. You had President Cuomo trending. Like, you have to capitalize on these opportunities that present themselves to you. Show people why you're the real leader that's needed at this time. And Bernie's team just never adapted. Now, Bernie Sanders, I've said, is, you know, um, he's just too nice. So I don't think he's going to hit Biden in the way that he needs to, to be successful, to run a successful campaign. But if you can't adapt, then what do you expect? What do you expect? You're just going to lose. And that sucks to say. The thought of him dropping out is incredibly depressing. But I mean, what they're doing now, his campaign, what are they doing? Like, that's the question. What are they doing? Are they even playing to win currently? How are you not making a stronger case for Medicare for All, I get that the media is going to attack you, but they're going to attack you no matter what. You're never going to win over Democratic Party loyalists until you absolutely roll over and die and pledge loyalty to them, right? So no matter what you do, they're going to attack you and say that you and your supporters are divisive, so at least campaign like you want to win. But I mean, it's clear that people like Fah Shakir, they're not doing jack shit currently, and now they're pressuring Bernie Sanders to drop out.
So, I mean, what what was it? Like, that's my question to people like Faz Shakir. Were you just in this because you thought he was going to win and you wanted a position in his administration? I'm asking earnestly. Like, I'm not trying to be condescending. I'm asking, like, did you not care about the policies that Bernie was campaigning on? Medicare for all? Student debt cancellation? Because I think at the end of the day, you really have to understand the reality of DC. There are people who are political opportunists who aren't necessarily in this because they believe in the things that Bernie's talking about. They're in this for a paycheck. Look at Simone Sanders. She worked for Bernie in 2016, and now she's working with Joe Biden. I mean, imagine flipping from Bernie to Joe Biden. That's insane. So there's a lot of people who don't actually believe in anything. They just want to get a job. And unfortunately, there seems to be a large portion of people, you know, around Bernie Sanders that they don't want to ruffle any feathers. They don't want to actually fight because they know that, you know, in D.C., if you don't play by the rules of the establishment, your livelihood will be threatened. I mean, look at last week when Brianna Joy Gray called out Kamala Harris for not supporting Medicare for All. One of the first things that people like Bakari Sellers threatened her with was not being able to find another job in D.C. So, you know, if you're Faz Shakir and you're the campaign manager for Bernie Sanders and everyone in the establishment wants you to drop out, he's probably thinking in a self-interested way right now, wondering, you know, is it best for me in the future if I pressure Bernie to drop out so it looks like, you know, I'm willing to comply with the demands of the establishment so I can get a job again? I mean, I don't know. It's just... This election, um, it's really revealing that we really don't have any real allies. Like, the left is on its own. You can't really align with centrists and Democratic Party people, you know, the, the loyalists in particular, because they don't actually care about anything. You obviously can't align with Republicans because they are a capitalist-worshipping death cult. So, all we have is ourselves. The left is on its own, and they are abandoned. They don't have a political party. They don't have a home in D.C. So people who actually care about policies like Medicare for All, they're left just stranded. Who's going to pick up the mantle after Bernie Sanders is gone? I mean, nobody. Like, what we need, ideally, is, like, a left equivalent of Donald Trump or a wing of the Democratic Party who's willing to emulate the harsh tactics of the Tea Party. But, you know, everyone is too nice or too afraid to insult the Democratic Party establishment and we're in this fucked up situation to where, you know, the Democratic Party establishment says jump and progressives who are concerned with their own, you know, career prospects, say how high, because I definitely don't want to be marginalized in this town of D.C. Um, look, how about this? If I were Bernie Sanders, this is what I would do. I would say anyone who believes in Medicare for All, who believes in a Green New Deal, you can stay. Anyone who is never a true believer, you can go. We don't need you, and we certainly don't want you. Because, you know, it's clear that you don't want to win anyway. Like, you've already given up after Super Tuesday because we haven't shifted the strategy. Bernie hasn't either. But if I were Bernie, I would say now, going forward, this is a new campaign. We're going to reset and relaunch our campaign. Now, we're going to hammer Joe Biden because we're already getting pre-blamed with 
his loss in November if he does in fact lose. So we have nothing to lose. We're already the scapegoat regardless of the outcome. So we're going to hit him. We're going to show voters now that we have this opportunity to show people why Medicare for All is needed. We're going to hit him hard because he is not capable of winning. He's going to lose to Donald Trump. No, I don't think he's electable. I said that to be nice. No, I don't think he's looking out for voters because he said he'd veto Medicare for All, which means he doesn't care about this life-saving policy. Voters could die, and that doesn't matter to Joe Biden. So I have to remain in the race. I have a moral obligation to keep fighting because there's nobody else who's willing to step up and fight for all of these people that the Democratic Party abandoned. Will Bernie Sanders do that? No, because Bernie Sanders is too nice. And... um. I don't say that as a compliment to Bernie Sanders. Before, I said it as a compliment, but now it's like, look, if you have all these people who aren't willing to fight, then you have to go rogue and just run your own campaign. But Bernie's not capitalizing on this opportunity. He's not changing his campaign at all. So you can't not change anything and expect the trajectory of this race to change at all. It's going to remain static. It's going to remain the same. If things continue as they are now, Joe Biden will be the Democratic Party nominee and he will go into the convention with a majority. So you have time to stop this. You have a global pandemic that you can use to demonstrate how crucial policies like Medicare for All and rent control are. But Bernie isn't doing that. And he's probably just afraid to go after the Democratic Party establishment because he sees how powerful they are. So at the end of the day, uh, the left is forced to fight on their own because nobody is strong enough. Nobody uh, is willing to set aside self-interest and fight for the people because they're all worried about their own asses and that or they're just not strong enough to fight. Bernie just isn't strong enough to fight. It's depressing. It's sad. But I mean... What are you going to do? This is the reality that we are faced with. It happened. Bernie Sanders has officially suspended his 2020 campaign, and it's not like this is surprising, but it's still... It still feels surreal because this time it really felt like we were going to win. We were this close. And then everything changed in a matter of days. And Bernie's campaign just never adapted to the new reality after Super Tuesday. Now, I will just say, obviously, I disagree with his decision to suspend his campaign. Because by doing this now, suspending this early, he's handing over all all of his leverage to Joe Biden, and he will be remaining on the ballot, so you can still technically vote for him. I plan on doing so when Oregon holds their primary, but um, at this point in time, you know, he can't extract anything from the Democratic Party because he dropped out. So I disagree with this decision, but I understand Bernie Sanders has fought long and hard. He ran not once, but twice, and I have no doubt that this is literally the last thing that he wants to be doing now. So, you know, it's time for us to carry the torch. 
you know, he created this movement, he gave us this movement, he woke up an entire generation of people, and now it's on us to move forward. But I know that a lot of people are really, you know, doom and gloom today, and I am 100% with you. Let me just say, it's okay to be salty. I felt a lot better, admittedly, when I posted a bunch of snake emojis underneath Elizabeth Warren's tweet and rat emojis under Pete Buttigieg's tweet. You know, people responded asking me, Mike, what's this going to accomplish? The answer is nothing. It just felt really good to do that. (laughs) So let me have the snake and rat emojis, okay? For this one day, maybe this one last time, let me post snake and rat emojis underneath Elizabeth Warren. (laughs) and Pete Buttigieg and you should too if that makes you feel better but look um it's it's okay to be down it's perfectly reasonable to mourn the death of a campaign because uh this hurts worse the second time because you know going into this in attempt number two you you have a lot more experience right we've earned a lot more xp and it, it felt like we knew more about what we were doing and I think it's important and healthy for us to kind of reevaluate the campaign, figure out what we did right, what we did wrong, what we could have controlled that was within the realm of our control, figure out what external factors ultimately led to the demise of Bernie Sanders' campaign. I believe that there are a lot of external things that were out of our control, like people talk about maybe winning over the media next time. You will never win over the media. You will never win over the Democratic Party establishment. So I don't think that those are things that are within our control. But in terms of voter outreach, that is something that we can control. And since, you know, we couldn't win over older voters and Bernie Sanders didn't win over older black voters in particular in South Carolina, I think that is something that we have to grapple with, figure out what we did wrong and learn how to fix that going forward because it's not like I'm not willing to just chalk this up to a generational divide sure that's part of it but we've got to wake people up and I'm not going to hyper focus on electoral politics going forward my number one priority right now is to wake people up wake the working class up and let them realize that we call the one percent the one percent because they're only one percent of the population So isn't it outrageous that they get to dictate all of the policies that are passed in this country and you have zero say now? Isn't that a little outrageous? So my goal is to wake people up going forward and let them know that capitalism is killing them. The reason why they are miserable, the reason why they have to work until they die and will never be able to retire, and you spend almost every waking minute thinking about your job in this abusive employer-employee relationship is because of capitalism. And not enough people realized that they are valuable. I mean, we saw that a majority of voters supported Medicare for All in every single primary that took place so far. And they still voted for Joe Biden. So they don't believe that their lives are valuable enough to where they're demanding Medicare for all yet. They want it, but they're not willing to demand it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have voted for Joe Biden. So going forward, we have to, you know, look at our strategy with regard to electoral politics and really, really focus harder on organizing externally, on trying to get people to realize their worth 
and the immense amount of power that they have in this society and try to foster some sort of general strike. I think that there's a lot of things to look at. We have to be introspective. We can't afford to be, you know, uh, arrogant and say that we did everything right because I don't believe we did do everything right. I think there's a lot that we did wrong, but there's a lot that we did right and there's a lot that was out of our control. So, you know, I, I think that it's it's healthy for us and necessary for us to, you know, look at what we could have done right. But a lot of people currently are thinking about what do we do going forward? And that's a really good question. You know, you, you kind of see a plethora of different answers. And I genuinely, I don't know what the answer is. I don't necessarily think there's any one fix-all solution i think you've got to have a kitchen sink approach and that's always kind of been my philosophy a lot of people want to focus on you know ranked choice voting so we can build up a really uh credible and electorally viable third party i'm with you 110 percent. a lot of people think that we still have to reform the democratic party as hard as that may be i'm with you too a lot of people think we should just ignore electoral politics and focus on organizing i'm with you too um, I'm not trying to sound like a fence sitter. I'm just saying that whatever the movement chooses to do, I'm going to support that decision because whenever a large group, millions of people come together, there is potential for change if they actually recognize their value. So organizing is really important for me. I am just going to focus really, really heavily on educating people about how capitalism is going to kill all of us if we don't kill capitalism first. And I'm not saying that to be hyperbolic. I mean, the planet is not going to be habitable if we continue on this current trajectory with unfettered global capitalism. So if we don't put an end to that and wake people up really quick, the species won't survive. Now, I think I'm more optimistic than that at the end of the day. In spite of the fact that I have admittedly been, you know, suffering through a lot of depression lately. And that's not just because of the 2020 race. That's not just because of COVID-19. That's because of personal issues that I'm dealing with myself that I will recover from. It just takes time. But I am optimistic at the end of the day. And I think that at some point in time, I'm going to return to my original optimistic state. But, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit more weathered now, a little rougher around the edges, maybe even a little bit more toxic. But guess what? I think that's okay right now because we're angry. I'm angry and rightfully so. We have a right to be angry. And if you're not angry, I don't understand you. Genuinely, I, I don't understand you. I don't understand how you can be satisfied with the current set of circumstances. I don't know how you can be satisfied choosing between, you know, uh, one rapist and and the lesser of uh, the two rapists, allegedly. I just, I, I don't know how anyone can be uh, satisfied with that status quo. Like, what a miserable, miserable political system that we have that got us to this point. And I don't want you to feel like we're alone in, you know, this situation. Our friends over, you know, in the UK, they just had an opportunity to elect Labour and have Jeremy Corbyn be the prime minister, and they opted for British Trump. So we're not the only ones currently who are suffering. There's a lot of people around the world who find themselves in this same predicament. Some are better off than us. Other countries are worse off than us. So it's just a matter of taking the time that we need to heal, do a little bit of uh, self-care, as Elizabeth Warren supporters put it, 
and acknowledge that the Democratic Party, you know, we don't owe them jack-fucking-shit. We don't owe them a goddamn thing. They have to earn your vote if they want it. So regardless if Joe Biden wins or loses in November, the outcome has been predetermined by the Democratic Party establishment. We will be the scapegoats. We will be blamed. So I'm going to do what uh, I think is important. And uh, I don't know what that is currently. <laughs> Admittedly, you know, people have asked, Mike, what are you going to do? Are you going to support, you know, Howie Hawkins and the Green Party? We'll see. Um, I'm going to take time to mull this all over. I will admit that right now I'm heavily leaning towards not voting. And I know that my political science professors would, you know, um, think that that's heresy for me to say that. But, you know, t to me, voting is about exercising my power or not exercising my power. Um, it's about me making my voice heard. And currently, I just feel like we don't live in a democracy. Like, this is not democracy. We had people vote in a global pandemic, risking their lives. That's voter suppression. I just feel like I can't complain about how illegitimate the process is and then legitimate that process by voting. Now, if you want to vote green, I may be with you. Um, if you want to vote for Joe Biden for purposes of harm reduction, I'm not going to be exercising that strategy, but I respect your decision. I don't respect anyone's decision if they're choosing to vote for Donald Trump because I don't believe that burning it all down with four more years of complete stupidity and, you know, risk of war with Iran isn't the correct answer. So I can't respect your decision. I cannot if you vote for Donald Trump. But, you know, for everyone else who's considering voting third party, voting for Joe Biden if they live in a swing state, uh, not voting. I think that you have to do what's best for you. Nothing that I say or do will be able to convince you. This is a very personal decision. And to all of the people currently who are, you know, already screaming like Marcos Militz is about how if you don't vote for Joe Biden, then uh, Donald Trump is going to fill the next Supreme Court seat. I mean, do you honestly think that's going to convince anyone? Do you honestly believe that anyone will be more inclined to support Joe Biden if you scream at them the second after Bernie Sanders exits the race? The answer is no. So at the end of the day, like, obviously, I didn't prepare for this video. Um, I just am kind of speaking off the cuff. But look, it's a sad day. It's depressing. And I think that you're allowed to take this day to be salty, to be a little upset. But just know that at the end of the day, regardless of what you choose to do, not fighting is not an option for you. And I don't know how you want to channel the energy that you have, but don't let this moment depress you. Let it radicalize you. Uh, I can't credit who said that on Twitter because I don't remember who said it, but it was a great, great tweet. Um, however you want to mobilize and use your voice, as long as you're using it, I think that's really crucial currently. Um, and I don't know what capacity going forward I'm going to use my voice, but I know that I will use my voice. Um, and it's to, at this point, I think, try to get people to wake up and realize that they are voting for a system that is literally killing them. That's capitalism. So, um, I don't know what else to say. I think that there's not really anything to say. I've talked to um, 
you know, some of my friends in indie media. And I think we've all come to the consensus that this really fucking sucks. <laughs> of course it does. But I mean, I'm not going to get on camera and, you know, um, tell you that all hope is lost because I don't believe that. But I'm also not going to tell you that everything is going to be just fine because I don't believe that it will be. I think our future is in our hands. And that sounds cliche. It sounds corny. It sounds like a platitude. And it is a platitude. But I do think that we can still wield the tremendous amount of power that we have. We just have to figure out what the right way of doing that is uh, going to be. I think electoral politics has kind of proven to be a dead end because the establishment is still too powerful. So going forward, we just have to continue to fight and fight for people who don't have voices. Fight for people who are homeless. Fight for people who are non-citizens living in this country. Fighting for people who are dying because they don't have health care. Fight for trans people who are marginalized and their lives are threatened. Fight for sex workers. Fight for reparations. Fight for people who need us to fight for them. I think so long as we're fighting, then we can't, we can't, uh, you know, we can't be down on ourselves. But the minute we give up, the minute we even contemplate giving up, then the establishment wins. So they beat us, right? The establishment beat us. But this is, I believe, a temporary victory, right? Right now, you see a lot of people celebrating on Twitter and you see Bye Bye Bernie trending because that's a really phenomenal way to win over Bernie Sanders supporters. Um, but look, at the end of the day, I think that the establishment does know that their time is limited. And, you know, politics as usual, it can't possibly continue on in its current form. It's, it's unsustainable. And if fundamental change doesn't happen, then I think, you know, if that doesn't happen politically, it's going to happen in some other way, whether that is, you know, some type of political revolution in the sense that everyone rises up and has a general strike and takes to the streets, or, you know, the Democratic and Republican parties collapse and new parties emerge in their place. I don't know. Something's got to give because this current trajectory that we're on, it's just not sustainable. So um, I will leave by saying that even though I, you know, don't agree with Bernie Sanders on everything, strategically, I think he made a lot of mistakes. Bernie Sanders is still the motherfucking king of the progressive left, and he's not dead. He's not going anywhere. He still will be influencing American politics, and he has changed and reshaped politics and political discourse in America, and he may have lost, but he still changed politics. So what that should tell you is that just winning elections alone isn't everything. We still can shape American politics externally um, and maybe internally if that's what you choose. But either way, Bernie will be there and will continue to fight. He started this movement and now, you know, the responsibility lies with us to take it forward and to not let it die and to just keep fighting because we don't have a choice. The only option is to continue fighting in whatever capacity you think will be instrumental in getting us change. And I'll leave that there.
So Barack Obama, who absolutely, positively, desperately wants you to think that he has had no role in influencing the outcome of the 2020 Democratic Party primary, may have had a role in influencing Bernie Sanders to drop out. This is not confirmed. This is just speculation on my behalf. But there's evidence that might lead us to reasonably believe that he kind of nudged Bernie Sanders in that direction. Because as Ryan Nobles of CNN tweeted out, new former President Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders spoke multiple times in the last few weeks as the Vermont senator determined the future of his campaign. A source familiar with the conversation tells Dan America. And Ryan Nobles reminds us that even Bernie Sanders confirmed that him and Obama were in talks, and this was when Bernie Sanders was the front runner. I mean, how often do you talk to him? How important is it for you to, to, to earn his endorsement? And, and what kind of role do you think he'll play ultimately when you get to the general election? Uh, uh, I'm not gonna tell you that he and I are best friends, but we're friends, and I have talked to him on and off for the last many years, was uh, sitting down alone with him in the Oval Office on more than one occasion. I uh, talked to him uh, on the telephone every, every now and then. Uh, he is uh, an icon, clearly, in the Democratic Party. Uh, and I have absolute confidence that he will play a vigorous, vigorous role. I mean, I think he has said this uh, in the campaign, and we need him. No question about it. We need him. Uh, and uh, if I win, I'm sure he'll be there at my side. If somebody else wins, he'll be there at their side. Yeah. So it is very possible, if not likely, that Barack Obama had a hand in influencing Bernie Sanders to drop out. We already know that he was facing internal pressure to drop out by his campaign manager, Faz Shakir, and his surrogates like Pramila Jayapal. So it's not, you know, it wouldn't be surprising to me if Obama nudged him in that direction. And we have seen the reports. Barack Obama has been wanting to be seen as a neutral figure. There were reports that he would jump in to stop Bernie Sanders in the event, you know, it seemed like he'd run away with it. And guess what? That happened, actually. That happened. Because let me remind you, back after Nevada, Bernie Sanders was... He was unstoppable. I mean, it seemed as if nobody could stop him. So all that the Democratic Party needed was for Bernie Sanders to lose one state. And once they got that, the first person to win a primary whose name was not Bernie Sanders, Barack Obama moved heaven and earth to make sure that the entire establishment coalesced around Joe Biden. He was in talks with Pete Buttigieg, nudged him to drop out and back Joe Biden saying you have, you know, a lot of leverage. Maybe you should use it, wink, wink. I don't know if he talked to Amy Klobuchar, but I know that um, Texas was really important, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Beto O'Rourke endorsed Joe Biden, who said that Joe Biden was basically the past, and as a party, we should move forward. Oh, and let's not forget about how after Keith Ellison in 2017 had momentum in the endorsement of Bernie Sanders, Barack Obama stepped in to make calls on Tom Perez's behalf. So the thing about Barack Obama is that he likes to pull the strings behind the scenes like the puppet master that he is and hopes that we won't notice so that way, you know, he can still remain in our good graces. But guess what? We notice Obama. We see every single fucking thing that you're doing. And the person who you voted for, who promised you change, 
is now the biggest barrier to change in American politics. Because so long as Obama remains relevant and pulls strings behind the scenes, we will never be able to change the Democratic Party. You have to acknowledge that. We will never be able to actually take over the Democratic Party because it is controlled by Barack Obama, the person who promised change, who's now blocking all change. So the question is, what do we do to stop this? Well, we have to call it out because Barack Obama, he loves that the base still adores him, almost worships him. So if we don't call it out, call out what he's doing behind the scenes, all of the harm that he's causing, he's going to keep doing it. There's a reason why he's not doing all of this publicly. He's not stupid. You know, he's not like Hillary Clinton where he keeps putting his foot in his mouth. He's much more savvy. He does things behind the scenes. He fucks us while we're not looking behind our backs so we won't get mad at him. But it's time to notice what he's doing, shine a spotlight on him, and let people know what's happening. Barack Obama is the one pulling the strings behind the scenes. He wields a lot of influence in the Democratic Party. And you know, that's that's too bad. Considering Barack Obama is very largely responsible for Donald Trump's rise because we voted for him for change. And then after Obama, we got Donald Trump. It's almost like he didn't deliver on that promise of change. And now he's making sure that we never get change. Let's assume for a moment that Barack Obama hadn't stepped in and influenced everyone like Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, and Beto O'Rourke to endorse Joe Biden. What would have happened? They would have likely stayed in the race on Super Tuesday, and the moderates would have split the votes, and Bernie Sanders likely would have come away with the majority of pledged delegates after Super Tuesday and emerged as the presumptive nominee, as we all were expecting him to do. Even Pete Buttigieg on a debate stage acknowledged that the two candidates that would be, you know, remaining after Super Tuesday, if nothing changes, uh, would be Mike Bloomberg and Bernie Sanders. But Obama stepped in, as reports indicated he would, and stopped Bernie Sanders at the point when it seemed like he'd run away with it. So Obama is largely responsible for this. Now, he is not fully to blame because I think that we do have to take responsibility for our own failures. And I think that we we just didn't win over enough people and weren't able to overcome, you know, this electability myth that Joe Biden had going for him. So I'm not going to say that, you know, we're uh, blameless in this situation, but had Barack Obama not convinced everyone to coalesce around Biden, would things be different? Yes. So we've got to acknowledge that Barack Obama is the enemy of progress. He is the one who is actively stopping change behind the scenes. He's pulling the strings of the puppets and getting them to dance for us. And he doesn't want to come out and show his face because he knows how unpopular that would be. But guess what? We know Obama, and now we will fight you if you want to fight us. Because, I mean, anytime it looks like we're going to be able to make a difference, whether it be, you know, putting someone in charge of the DNC who isn't corrupt, or just electing someone to be the Democratic Party nominee who isn't a complete ghoul, you have stepped in and you've stopped that from happening. So if you want to fight us, bring it on we're ready for a fight just show your face stop being a coward stop hiding behind the scenes stop making private phone calls
tell us what you're doing. Show us what you're doing, coward. Come out. Show your fucking face. Stop hiding. And fight us if you want to fight us. Because guess what? We helped you get elected. You'd be nothing without us. We all voted for you. My first vote when I was eligible for the first time was for you. So we created this monster. So if you want to fight us, we'll fight you. We've got to fight the monster that we've created. And that's just one of the many tasks that we have ahead of ourselves if we want actual change. But understand, Barack Obama is creating barriers to progress. He is now an obstacle, and he is now someone who must be resisted. So if we don't defeat Barack Obama and call out his quote-unquote meddling, then we will continue to lose. So that means we name and shame him. Okay, we name and shame him. We educate people about what he did to make sure that we propped up this alleged rapist and cognitive decline all to stop Bernie Sanders, someone who actually would have delivered change. So thanks, Obama. When Elizabeth Warren dropped out, we were told to give her and her supporters a lot of space. Let them grieve, you know, allow them some time for self-care. Let her go on Saturday Night Live as people, you know, lose their homes and die due to a lack of health insurance. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's funny because Bernie Sanders dropped out and we're not given that same courtesy. Nobody is saying, let's let the Bernie bros have a little bit of time for self-care. The establishment, uh, almost immediately after Bernie Sanders dropped out, told us all to fall in line or eat shit. Because Bernie Bros was the number one trending hashtag on Twitter, along with, you know, uh, other themes that we see from the corporate wing of the Democratic Party. Blue no matter who, bye-bye Bernie, and vote for Biden. And, you know, it's funny. Corporate Democrats, they're not even wasting a minute to, you know, demand that Bernie Sanders put in the work to get Joe Biden elected. It's not Joe Biden who's got to do that. It's Bernie Sanders who is obligated to make sure that Joe Biden is dragged across the finish line. David Axelrod tweeted, Bernie Sanders bowed to the math in acknowledging that Joe Biden will be the nominee. He used the time today to laud his movement, but if his goal is to defeat real Donald Trump, he'll have to make a more affirmative case for Biden and why his supporters should support him. So it's not Joe Biden who has to make the case for Joe Biden. It's Bernie Sanders who has to make the case for Joe Biden. Okay, so um, what does Joe Biden have to do? Like, realistically speaking, I'm asking neoliberals, what do you believe Joe Biden is responsible for doing? Like, does he have any role in winning himself, or does that all fall on the shoulders of Bernie Sanders? Like, I genuinely am asking earnestly. I want to know, because I don't believe that they think Joe Biden has to do anything. I think that uh, we are supposed to shut the fuck up, uh, not just vote for Joe Biden, but enthusiastically do it and worship Joe Biden. You know, it, that's the way that it seems. Um, and if we're not uh, being told to fall in line, then we're being guilt-tripped because Marcos Melitzas tweeted out, I'm not voting for Joe Biden translates to, I want Trump to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg, to which Joy Reid responded, succinctly put. Now, again, I don't want Donald Trump to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But why are we to blame when Ruth Bader Ginsburg should have resigned when Obama was president? Like, why didn't she do that? Maybe it's the case 
that our entire democracy shouldn't hinge on the health of someone who's what 90 plus years old maybe our system itself is a little bit flawed if that's what it has come down to you know but again this will never be on their backs this is on your back it's all on you to make sure that Joe Biden is victorious in November. And if he does win, it's going to be uh, despite you. And if he uh, loses, it will definitely be because of you. You will be given no credit. You will only be lambasted. And on top of that, former Hillary staffers literally planned a bye-bye Bernard Zoom call that they ended up canceling to celebrate the death of his campaign. So, I mean, look... <laughs> The body of Bernie 2020 hasn't even gone cold yet, and they are already jumping down our throats, telling us to eat shit and shut the fuck up. Like, these people are absolutely just, I don't even know how to describe them. Even Neera Tandon wasted no time saying, hey guys, let's unite. Neera Tandon of all people. Like, the nerve, the gall, after you spit in our faces, to say unite, to even use that word. Hilarious. But it's not just corporate Democrats, because corporate media is also joining the chorus of Bernie Sanders haters. And they're angry that Bernie, in exiting the Democratic primary, which is what they wanted, isn't kissing Joe Biden's ass enough. Take a look. What struck me the most there is Senator mm -hmm. Sanders, in saying goodbye, did acknowledge that Joe Biden had an insurmountable lead. But he didn't say anything nice about Joe Biden. He did not say he had spoken to him. He did not say he would work with him. He said it was imperative to beat President Trump, but there was no big embrace of Joe Biden. He said nicer things about Joe Biden back during some of the Democratic debates than he said in saying goodbye. It was really noteworthy uh, that that was not part of his message at all. In fact, it's funny you say that as he was speaking, I was texting with people in and around Joe Biden asking if he had gotten a phone call because it was so uh, glaringly absent. What struck me the most here is he didn't say anything nice about Joe Biden. Um, and then Dana Bash chimes in and she says, I was texting people in and around Joe Biden asking if he had gotten a phone call because it was glaringly absent. Uh, counterpoint, he did, you just didn't notice. Today, I congratulate Joe Biden, a very decent man, who I will work with to move our progressive ideas forward. Now, let me be clear here. Bernie Sanders is wrong. Joe Biden is not a decent man. He is a bad person who uh, would veto a policy that would save lives. And on top of that, he has voted for numerous wars that have uh, led to death and destruction. He allegedly raped Tara Reid. And uh, other women have accused him of inappropriate touching. His policies are dog shit. Almost everything that he's implemented or fought for has been damaging to women and the progressive movement. Remember Anita Hill? He's not a decent person. Bernie is wrong, but Bernie is saying what he thinks he needs to say. But even though he said that, it's still not good enough for them. It's still not good enough for them. Bernie Sanders, in the event he literally were to spread Joe Biden's ass cheeks and kiss his anus, that wouldn't be enough. They want you to completely roll over and declare Joe Biden God. And maybe, just maybe, they would think that you've done enough to appease the king. How about this? Fuck off. <laughs> 
fuck off all of you, fuck your guilt trips, uh, fuck all of your, you know, uh, nagging at the Bernie bros, calling us toxic, how about you all go fuck yourselves, because here's the thing, this wasn't about Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders was just a vessel for a policy program that would save and change lives. Not just that, but save the world for future generations. So this isn't about, you know, our dreams of a Bernie presidency being crushed. This is us dealing with the reality that you seem to not care about, that our planet is not going to be habitable for future generations. We are dealing with the reality that Medicare for All will never pass so long as the corporate wing of the Democratic Party continues to reign supreme, and that means people are going to die every single year. This is what we're dealing with, a really grim future, a reality that you decided uh, was going to be hijacked by the corporate wing of the party. Like, you already ran the party into the ground, lost a thousand seats in state legislatures across the country during Obama's tenure, and now you're saying, you know what, we still need control of the party because we're not done skull-fucking it yet. We need to fuck it a little bit longer, make sure it's a little bit more broken before we inevitably hand it off to your generation. Hopefully you won't be too mad at us. Wink, wink. I mean, these people are just, they're so insufferable, and if they've demonstrated anything to the left that I want the left to take away, it's that we can't work with these people. We can't work with them. Like, you would be just as uh, successful trying to work with fucking Republicans. You've got to understand that Democrats and Republicans, they subscribe to the same neoliberal, pro-capitalist cult ideology albeit to different degrees, but it's the same ideology nonetheless. Republicans just want full-on open markets. You know, Democrats, they want a few tweaks around the edges. So working with them when their ideology is completely opposed to everything that we stand for, it's not going to work. Like, it makes for really strange bedfellows. That relationship is impossible because, you know, these are irreconcilable differences. So, you've got to understand that these people, they can't be worked with. They can't be reasoned with. They are your enemy. The Democratic Party is your enemy. And the quicker the left understands that, the better off I think we'll all be because you can't actually affect change if you don't know what you're dealing with, if you don't know who your enemy is, right? So, the Democratic Party... All of the leaders there, they are your enemy. They are the barrier to change that we have to break down if we ever want to win. Now, that's not to say that Republicans are any better. That's not to say that Donald Trump is better than Joe Biden. I don't believe that. But what I am saying is that this two-party duopoly has been absolutely crushing, not just to Americans, but to the planet as a whole. And you can't delude yourself into thinking that we can somehow win over these people. No, they have to be thoroughly defeated. As I said before, either they've got to defeat us entirely, or we've got to defeat them. But this marriage can't last. It won't last. Because working with Democrats, when you know their views are diametrically opposed with everything that we stand for, it's not possible. We want Medicare for All. They're fighting to stop that. We want a Green New Deal. They're fighting to stop that. Now, they say they support a Green New Deal, but again, that's that's just lip service, right? When you look at what Joe Biden stands for, his record on climate change, does it really mean anything to you when he says he supports a Green New Deal? Of course not. So, you know, the path to change is direct grassroots organizing and making sure that we are uncivil, disruptive, and as uh, quote-unquote toxic 
as they say we are. Because guess what? You can't just sit idly by and go out to brunch while this party continues to run the country into the ground and allow fascists to win. We have to absolutely get even more rowdy than we were before, organize strikes, make sure that we let them know that just because Bernie lost, you know, we're not just going to roll over and die. We're not going to succumb to the pressures of the establishment. We will not be placated or co-opted. They can all go fuck themselves because they haven't heard the last of us. And we need to let them know that that's the case. So I don't know what else to say. Uh, I will just say that uh, Democrats are completely shameless, but I'm already preaching to the choir. I think you all know that by now. Well, Bernie Sanders has dropped out, and you know what that means. Bernie Sanders supporters are now free agents. Now, I've told you what Joe Biden's pitch is to Bernie Sanders supporters. It fell flat, to say the least. Um, but everyone else is also trying to uh, take a shot at winning us over, including the orange chud chief himself, Donald J. Trump, because he made an attempt to woo Bernie Sanders supporters by uh, pandering to us. He tweeted, Bernie Sanders is out. Thank you to Elizabeth Warren. If not for her, Bernie would have won almost every state on Super Tuesday. This ended just like the Democrats and the DNC wanted. Same as the crooked Hillary fiasco. The Bernie people should come to the Republican Party. Trade. No! 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 First of all, I don't believe that Elizabeth Warren is the sole reason why Bernie Sanders lost. Uh, Elizabeth Warren certainly was selfish and she didn't help. She tried to attack Bernie, but I don't think that she's the sole reason. Um, but regardless, like think about how delusional Donald Trump is and what he's asking Bernie Sanders supporters to do. He's asking them to make the jump from democratic socialism all the way to far-right fascism. No. <laughs> like, what? Like, Choosing to leave the Democratic Party, that's a rational move to a demoralized left. That makes sense. You know, I'm in a closed primary state, so I have to remain registered until after the primaries, but I will promptly change my registration back to independent. But switching from Democrat to Republican is trading down. Like, that's the definition of stupidity. Um, I know that this is kind of a, a trope at this point, but it's like saying, well, you know, the store's out of bottled water, so I'm going to purchase bleach and drink that instead it's fucking stupid and the fact that he thinks he even has a shot is it's just it's mental it is absolutely delusional and i love how some of the chud followers members of the uh, maga cult are also trying to make their pitch uh, you see brandon straka who is uh, i guess formerly a democrat tweet out hey bernie supporters ready to hashtag walk away mm -mm. Yes, because that definitely not astroturfed movement that you started is going to convince us to walk away from a really shitty corporate captured party to a shittier corporate captured party. Like, the progressive left is irritated that the Democratic Party is uh, constantly belittling us and pissing on us, but you're asking us to move to a party that uh, isn't just wanting to piss on us. They're shitting and vomiting on us into our mouths. So uh, the trade-off would be absolutely horrible. But I just, I had to talk about this because I find it absolutely humorous. You know, Donald Trump, he is correct to point out the corruption of the DNC and the establishment, but what else is true? 
the RNC is just as corrupt as the DNC. They tried to rig it against him, but he had a lot of name recognition and won. And in the event he didn't, you know, win a majority, I think that there would have been an attempt by the Republican establishment to steal it away from him. And, you know, Republican leadership hasn't improved under him. He hasn't drained the swamp. He's a corporate stooge. He's a corporate stooge. How many Goldman Sachs officials are in Donald Trump's administration? And he promised to drain the swamp? Uh, how much money did the RNC give to purchase Trump Jr.'s book, Triggered? Because they wanted it to be a bestseller? How much has Donald Trump profited off of his businesses by being president? So I find this absolutely pathetic and insulting that he thinks he even has a chance to win over Bernie Sanders supporters. Fuck Donald Trump, fuck the Democrats, but also fuck the Republican Party. Because guess what? Choosing to leave the Democratic Party and go to the Republican Party is the definition of stupidity. Now that Bernie Sanders has dropped out, Joe Biden has a huge task ahead of him. He knows he can't win without the left. He cannot win without Bernie Sanders supporters. Hillary Clinton was not able to win over Bernie Sanders supporters, and that is largely because she didn't even try, like not even a little bit. So if Joe Biden even wants a chance at defeating Donald Trump, he has to win over a sizable portion of Bernie's base in order to be electorally successful. Um, will he be able to do that? I genuinely don't know. I think that winning over Bernie Sanders supporters is important, but the bigger task ahead of him, if not the main task, is getting disaffected non-voters to come out for him. That I think he's going to struggle with. Uh, with that being said, immediately after Bernie Sanders dropped out, he made a pitch to Bernie Sanders supporters, and I will uh, judge this on a scale from 1 to 10 to tell you what I think about this. He tweeted, I know Bernie well. He's a good man, a great leader, and one of the most powerful voices for change in our country. And it's hard to sum up his contributions to our politics in one single tweet, so I won't try to. To Bernie and Jane as friends from Jill and me, you haven't just run a political campaign, you've created a movement. And make no mistake about it, we believe it's a movement that is as powerful today as it was yesterday. That's a good thing for our nation and our future. Yeah, right. We know how hard it is. You have put the interest of the nation and the need to defeat Trump above all else. And for that, we're grateful. But we want you to know we'll be reaching out. You'll be heard by me. As you say, not me, us. And to Bernie's supporters, I know that I need to earn your votes. And I know that might take time. But I want you to know that I see you. I hear you and I understand the urgency of this moment. I hope you'll join us. You're more than welcome. You're needed. Together, we will defeat Donald Trump, but we will also address the climate crisis. We will make college affordable, and we will make healthcare available to all. We will not just rebuild this nation. We'll transform it, and I'm asking you to join me. And then he provides you with a link to get on his mailing list, and then that leads to a uh, donation page. No thanks. So, on a scale from 1 to 10, I rate this 6.5. It's better than Hillary Clinton. I'll give him that because Hillary Clinton's pitch effectively was, where else are you going to go? You have no one else to vote for. So you've got to fall in line and support me. So fuck off. I'm going to try to win over some Republicans now. So I do give him credit uh, by saying, I know I have to earn your vote, but I know that, that <laughs> he knows that's exactly what 
he has to say currently because he saw how badly Hillary Clinton face planted. But let me tell you where he's going wrong in uh, trying to pander to us while not actually tweaking his message. He's saying, look, we all are going to address the climate crisis together. We'll make college affordable, which means nothing, um, and we'll make healthcare available to all. Except you literally said that you would veto Medicare for all. I don't think he fully realizes just how damaging that interview was to his electoral prospects. Like anyone who thought, I think uh, delusionally so, no disrespect, but delusionally so, that they could somehow push him to the left, all hope of that vanished immediately when he said, if Congress historically managed to pass Medicare for all, I'd veto it. So he has a lot of work to do. Now, you're not going to be able to win over 100% of Bernie Sanders supporters. And for me, I will say, am I gettable? Yes. Will he earn my vote? Most likely, no. Because what I'm asking for is a very tall order. Uh, first and foremost, I'll tell you where to start. You have to unequivocally unapologetically not only endorse medicare for all but campaign on it relentlessly and bring it up every single time i hear you talk to someone in the mainstream media every single time and not only that all of the donations that you took from the health industry and big pharma you've got to return them you've got to donate them to charity because i can't believe that you are going to actually fight for medicare for all so long as you have that money that's influencing you. And even if you were to do these things, I don't think that a solid portion of the left would even be down for you because we just don't believe you. There is a trust deficit. So the Democratic Party may just not be able to win over the left for a long time. Like, they literally have to deliver a policy. They have to pass Medicare for all. It has to be signed into law, and we have to have it in order to get these voters back. That's how much damage the Democratic Party has done, and they don't even realize it. They think that bullying us into supporting Joe Biden, they think that fear-mongering relentlessly about Donald Trump is going to suffice. It didn't work in 2016, and I assure you, it's not going to work in 2020, especially now that you have a weaker candidate going up against Donald Trump. Like Hillary Clinton, as uh, conniving and evil and duplicitous as she was, at least she could speak coherently, right? But with Joe Biden, you have someone who is very clearly in cognitive decline. He's been incredibly accused of sexual assault, if not rape. So the task here is even greater than it was in 2016. So I don't think the Democratic Party fully understands what they have to do to win over the left. Now, on top of that, you've got to pick a VP who's progressive. And I don't mean someone who is a progressive in name only. Picking Kamala Harris obviously is not going to suffice. We're not going to be excited to vote for that cop who jailed children who or jailed parents of children who violated truancy laws. Nobody's going to vote for that cop. If you want to win, you actually have to pick someone who's legitimately progressive. And I'm talking really progressive, like a socialist. Maybe Rashida Tlaib, Nina Turner, Bernie Sanders himself. But anything short of someone who is just like far left, socialist, it's not going to excite anyone. Now, certainly... You can't make the boneheaded decision that Hillary Clinton made and pick someone 
to your right because that is incredibly fucking stupid so you know we're getting an indication because joe biden said i'll try to earn your vote that he knows that he has to do a little bit of work like he's more uh, i think savvy than hillary clinton or at least his team is um but here's the thing i don't think he fully comprehends how much work he has to put in to win over bernie sanders supporters just you know making a platform be slightly more progressive that isn't enough because we don't trust you that's the thing we don't trust you and non-voters aren't going to trust you if you don't put forward a really bold radical agenda that's not going to convince people to get out and vote we still don't know if we'll be living through this pandemic come november so you've got to work so fucking hard i can't even begin to describe the task that you have ahead of you like you don't get it i don't think he fully realizes what he has to do but i will say the fact that he at least acknowledged that he has to earn our votes is savvy but that's not enough that is not enough we want solutions we want policy concessions and we want collateral we want to know that you'll actually fight for these policies and because there's so little trust there because you have at every turn spit in the faces of young people saying you have no empathy for us and that you'd veto medicare for all he just may not be able to win over a, a, a certain portion of bernie sanders supporters he just it may be impossible for him now will he win over a lot sure i think a lot of bernie sanders supporters will suck it up and vote for joe biden as you know they did for hillary clinton in 2016 but you've got to work hard like if you're serious and i don't even think he read these tweets i'm pretty sure that it was one of the staffers that put this out but if you're serious about winning over bernie sanders supporters take my words very seriously we want policies not just an endorsement of a policy but absolutely vociferous advocacy for that policy and a vp who's actually going to hold you to that policy will we get that no don't think so but you know look I, i'm not i'm not unwinnable right at this point i think i'm most likely not going to vote um that may change i may vote for the green party nominee but i am gettable if i genuinely believe that i'll get one life-changing life-saving policy and i can trust that you're going to fight for it uh i'd vote for you do i think i'm gonna get that from joe biden i don't so um look good luck bud you are absolutely going to need that because uh <laughs> I, I can't even I, I can't even put into words the task that you have ahead of you it's gonna be tough well joe biden sent a very clear message to bernie sanders supporters i hear you and i know that i have to earn your votes so the day after bernie sanders decided to exit the 2020 race he released two policy concessions that are specifically intended to woo us over as greg Sargent points out on twitter the joe biden campaign is set to make its first big overture to bernie sanders voters biden will roll out two policies lower medicare age to 60 and forgive student debt for low and middle income borrowers okay so forgiving some student debt that can be um 
I, I think, appealing to a lot of younger people. But in terms of lowering the Medicare age to 60, if that's all that you're willing to concede with regard to health care, he genuinely doesn't understand. Like, he misunderstands the Bernie Sanders movement. That's the best that you're willing to do. Reduce the age of Medicare by five years. That's it. Um, let me ask you this. Who is Bernie Sanders' demographic disproportionately? It's young people, right? So how would telling them that they can possibly get Medicare five years earlier excite them in any way, shape, or form? I'm going to tell you the age that you should lower it to. Zero. Every single person should be allowed to get Medicare. It should be an automatic thing that we all get just by residing in the United States of America. The fact that he's offering us Medicaid at 60 is honestly insulting. I mean, because it shows like he's not willing to go any further. He won't even say Medicare at 50. Isn't that what Sherrod Brown even suggested? What do you expect? Like, do you honestly believe this is going to appeal to people? People are dying every single year. 68,000 Americans every year. This is according to a Yale study, not me. That's a peer-reviewed study. And you think that Medicare at 60 is going to appeal to us? And I'm assuming that that means really no changes to Medicare as it stands, right? Because when we talk about Medicare for all, what we're talking about in reality is expanding, but also improving Medicare as it stands. Because in its current shape, it's just not good enough. Even if you qualify for Medicare, you still usually have to buy supplemental insurance because it doesn't cover everything. So the appeal of Medicare for All is that we're not just expanding Medicare to everyone, we're improving it and it's comprehensive. You get everything, dental, vision. So to just say, you know what? Here you go, Bernie supporters. Here's Medicare at 60. It's honestly, genuinely insulting. If he thinks that this is going to win over anyone, it's not. It's not. How does this help a 20-year-old or someone who's 27 and they no longer can stay on their parents' plan? How does this help them? It doesn't help them. So this tells me that Joe Biden isn't actually serious about winning over Bernie Sanders supporters. And here's the thing. I don't want to like construct this false reality that Joe Biden has to win over Bernie Sanders supporters in order to win because I think that the real obstacle for him is exciting Democratic Party voters, non-voters enough, so that way they come out and vote for him. We know there's a gigantic enthusiasm gap between him and Donald Trump. So you can't just offer these milquetoast solutions and expect people who haven't voted in decades to come out and suddenly support you. Medicare at 60 isn't going to do anything to win back those voters. Like, if you're serious about winning and you genuinely, like, you really, really want to win... You have to do better than this. Otherwise, Trump will get another four years, and that means the Supreme Court will be filled by Donald Trump. He's going to get one to two more appointments, and we're looking at a seven to eight conservative majority. We'd be lucky to have, what, like one liberal on the Supreme Court? Two? He doesn't get it. This should scare every single centrist Democrat currently. He does not get it. So log off of Twitter... 
log off of Twitter, stop browbeating Bernie supporters, and immediately start phone banking for Joe Biden. If you are serious about defeating Donald Trump, you're not going to convince Bernie supporters. Um, and Joe Biden isn't going to convince anyone with this. So you have to put in the extra time and effort to help him win because he's not going to do this himself. Like if he wins, it'll be because he's been dragged across the finish line by Obama and Bernie. This is, I don't know what to say. What an embarrassment. Medicare at 60? Fuck out of here. So I was originally going to talk about this sooner, but um, I got a little sidetracked once Bernie Sanders announced that he'd be exiting the 2020 race. But I do still think that it's important because it demonstrates why there is such this huge trust deficit when it comes to Joe Biden and voters. And I think that politicians in his generation disproportionately need to realize, not to sound ageist, is that in the age of the internet, you can't just brazenly lie anymore like we're not going to wait until the mainstream media broadcasts your conflicting uh speeches or opinions or views we can look that up on our own accord so it's incumbent on you to be as consistent and honest as you possibly can and not change the story suddenly if what you were saying previously uh, is now inconvenient so in an interview with george stephanopoulos stephanopoulos that name is impossible. In an interview with ABC News, um, he was asked whether or not he believed that it was safe for people to vote uh, in Wisconsin. The answer is no, unequivocally, but he was kind of dodgy. He didn't really give a direct answer. As you know, Wisconsin now having its primary on Tuesday, uh, your opponent, Senator Sanders, has said that should be put off, but, and, the, and the governor now joined that chorus as well, but it looks like it's going to happen. Is that wise? Well, look, I think they should just follow the science. I, uh, and, uh, you know, what I've been hearing, I've been following like you have, like everybody has, watching the court action is still in court now. And, uh, but I think whatever, whatever the science says is what we should do. Whatever the science says is whatever we should do, which is what? Because you are the one who's telling us that you're in constant contact with the medical experts and the scientists. So, like, don't just say that we have to listen to them. You've been consulting with them. So tell us what they're telling you. What do they say? I would imagine uh, they would be saying, of course, it's a bad idea to force people to vote during a global pandemic. So, you know, at that time when Bernie was still in the race, if you and Bernie both told people that it's not safe for them to vote then, you know, there's there's really no loss for either of you there. You're both making the responsible, albeit difficult, decision to tell people to protect themselves, right? I, there's no way that I would have encouraged people to vote uh, and risk their lives, potentially. Like, I would have that on my conscience forever if I were running for office and I told people to vote, even if I knew it, risk, it would potentially put them in jeopardy and risk their lives. Um, but Joe Biden, uh, a couple of days prior in a virtual town hall said, you know what? It's not up to me. We just have to let the courts decide. Well, I mean, they decided we all know how that turned out. And the Republican courts in Wisconsin said, we're going to force them to vote in a global pandemic. Now he's been making a lot of really 
problematic statements about COVID-19. And this isn't just a recent phenomenon. He was making problematic statements on Super Tuesday 3, which occurred on March 17th. And for more on this, we'll go to a Daily Beast report by Scott Bixby and Hunter Woodall, who explain there's a lot of things that can be done. That's for the Wisconsin courts and folks to decide. Former Vice President Joe Biden said last Thursday in a virtual press briefing in which he insisted that in-person and mail-in voting could both be done safely, even though he considers the possibility of a national convention in the state to be a potential risk to public health. Hmm, I wonder why. It's almost like he doesn't want to risk his own ass. A convention having tens of thousands of people in one arena is very different than having people walk into a polling booth with accurate spacing with six to ten feet apart, one at a time going in, and having the machines scrubbed down, Biden said. I think you could hold the election as well, dealing with mail-in ballots and same-day registration. I think it could be done, but that's for them to decide. I can only wonder if he's completely aware of the situation on the ground in Wisconsin. Kim Butler, head of the Polk County Democratic Party, said of Biden not calling for a delay. Because I don't think if he was really seeing and hearing what was going on here, that he would necessarily feel that way. But Butler, who lives in a red county and said the dynamics playing out on the ground in her area have shown her how difficult it can be to vote, worries that in-person voting Tuesday means that voters will get sick and that fears of the pandemic will suppress the vote. My major fear is that people are going to get sick and possibly even die from voting tomorrow, Butler said. In Sauk County, the Democratic Party chair said Monday morning she was focused on getting absentee ballots returned, but in another sign of the times, she wasn't actively encouraging in-person voting on Tuesday. So initially, he said we should let the courts decide. The courts decided, and seeing the blowback that the Republican-controlled court got, how unpopular that was, almost universal condemnation from people in the center and the left, well, all of a sudden, he's changing his story. He's no longer saying, we uh, should distrust the courts. This is what he had to say. Do you think you won in Wisconsin? Tonight, ordinarily, I'd be hitting you over the head with all these exit polls and cross tabs and things that I know about people all the way down to what they like for lunch. Uh, we're not going to have anything until Monday. What's your gut? No, we're not. Well, my gut uh, is that we shouldn't have had the election in the first place, uh, the in-person election. It should have been all mail ballots in. Uh, it should have been moved in the way that five other states have done it. It's uh, the idea didn't have enough poll workers in, what, uh, over a hundred and some polling places. Uh, and so he was unequivocal. He was unequivocal. But prior to the blowback that the Wisconsin court received... He wasn't so unequivocal. He was pretty dodgy, if you ask me. I mean, you saw the video. Decide for yourself. Now, this isn't the first time that we've gotten this sort of wishy-washiness from Joe Biden. And, you know, it's not the first time that they basically endorsed the idea that voting in a global pandemic is A-OK. -okay. Because on March 17th, during Super Tuesday 3, when more states were voting, Simone Sanders went on CNN in an interview with Chris Cuomo and said... You know what? It's actually fine if they vote because we're listening to the experts. She did not call for a delay back then. Joe Biden did not call for a delay back then. This is what was said. Uh, CDC says no groupings bigger than 50. That's like every polling station except in very small counties. Uh, the idea of delaying primaries. Uh, Senator Sanders seemed comfortable with that. We should listen to what the CDC says. Delay the primaries if we have to. What are your concerns? Well, look, uh, Chris, I want to be very clear. 
uh, democracy is extremely important. And in times of war, in times of strife, our country has always upheld the need to upheld our, uphold our democracy. Um, we have voted in war times. We have, you know, votes were held um, many times in this country after, again, times of strife. So the reality is that the CDC has, in fact, yes, issued guidance um, that has told people to keep their social distancing, not to gather in large crowds. And governors across the country, particularly in the states that vote on Tuesday, Ohio, Arizona, Florida, um, Illinois, they have said that they feel comfortable and are confident that the elections will not only be safe, but that they can carry them mm. out. And so I am looking to these governors, frankly, um, to abide by the CDC guidance. And if they say that they can administer this, administer this process, we believe them, frankly. So a number of early votes, though, Chris, have already been cast. Right. I was looking at some stuff today that said um, Florida's early vote numbers are, are, are tracking ahead of what they were in 2016. So I just encourage folks to you folks to use your voice. Your vote is your voice, and our democracy um, is is extremely important. And even in times of strife in this country, we have to do our duty. So uh, the CDC and folks have said it's safe out there for Tuesday. So I, you know, I don't know what Senator Sanders was talking about, but I'll tell you, Governor Dewine said it was safe in Ohio. So I, I encourage people to get out there and vote on Tuesday. Simone Sanders, thank you very much. Appreciate your take. Thank you. Now, Joe Biden used that same exact talking point. He said, we voted in times of war. Right, but war isn't contagious. Like, you can't catch war at the voting booth. So, that's a meaningless platitude. Uh, even in times of strife in this country, we have to do our duty. So, that's his press spokesperson, Simone Sanders, saying, I think voters should vote in a global pandemic. That's their duty. But now that it's unpopular, mm, not so much. Now, when she made this recommendation, Bernie Sanders press spokesperson, Brianna Joy Gray, called this out because it's dangerous. On Twitter, she said, Simone Sanders just said on CNN with Chris Cuomo that the CDC said it's safe to vote on Tuesday. That's wrong. The only guidance we have so far is that we should not gather in groups of 50 people or more. I'm sure it's an honest mistake, but this is a public health crisis. Now, when she said that, when she called out Simone Sanders, she was attacked by centrist Democrats. Neera Tanden responded to that tweet saying, is the Sanders campaign telling people not to vote on Tuesday? Yeah, they were telling people they shouldn't vote. It should be delayed. Because guess what happened? After people voted, there were reports of people in Broward County contracting COVID-19. Now, I'm sure that you will be shocked to know that Neera Tanden has also since changed her position. She tweeted, Republicans are forcing voters to go to the polls tomorrow. Why? So they can win a state Supreme Court seat that could tilt November's election. And she also retweeted Ben Wickler, who stated, if you think that this is what should be happening today, you're either uninformed about coronavirus, a nihilistic partisan, or a Republican-appointed justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, or a combo. And she also retweeted a tweet from Patricia McKnight, where she thanks everyone for sharing the image of her holding a sign that says this is ridiculous. So my question is, Nira, are you suggesting that people shouldn't vote? I mean, do you understand? There's there's zero consistency here. They uh, move the goalpost and they never take responsibility for what they've done, the harm that they've caused. And how many people contracted COVID-19 because they voted on Super Tuesday 3? How many people contracted COVID-19 or were exposed to it because they voted in Wisconsin. I mean, if there was some leadership from Joe Biden, 
in all reality, that wouldn't have changed the outcome because this decision was issued by a Republican-controlled court, and the U.S. Supreme Court backed them up, right? But the Democratic governor, Tony Evers of Wisconsin, made the right call. I mean, it took him a little long, right? There was a lot of pressure on him, but he ultimately made the right call. But Joe Biden did not make the right call until after everyone else had already vocalized their uh, disgust with the choice that the Wisconsin court made. So do you understand like this is why there's a trust deficit because you're trying to pee on our legs and tell us it's raining. You're trying to say, oh, I was with you all along. No, you weren't, though. And this is the problem. This is why we can't trust Joe Biden. This is why voters aren't enthusiastic to vote with him, because he's a Johnny-come-lately when it comes to every issue. It's not just this. It's the crime bill. All of a sudden, the crime bill was bad, and he's backing legislation that would undo the damage that his bill caused. All of a sudden, you know, the Iraq war was a bad war, even though he voted for it and advocated for it um as a lawmaker do you understand like this is why there's so little trust which translates into a lack of enthusiasm for joe biden it's why we told people he was a bad candidate to take on donald trump but now it's too late he will face off against donald trump barring some extreme circumstance where he is replaced at the convention which is highly unlikely i think <laughs> and yeah so, um, what we need to be pushing for is vote by mail. We've had it in Oregon for a very long time, and it has been very successful. Now, this is a battle that we will have to have with Republicans because Donald Trump was very explicit in condemning vote by mail. I think he called it corrupt. He said it's bad for Republicans. Um, too bad. You see, this kind of, uh, they're mask off. They're saying the quiet part out loud. They're not supposed to admit that all of the voter suppression tactics was actually meant to suppress the vote. They're supposed to chalk it up to some other bullshit, you know, um, excuse. Like, well, we don't implement these voter ID laws because we want to stop black and brown people from voting. We institute these types of policies because, you know, we're trying to stop voter fraud, which is so widespread. So it's just, it's a really frustrating situation. Um, these are the most important times where Americans are looking for a leader. And Joe Biden has uh, failed unquestionably when it comes to leadership here. Bernie Sanders put together a video, which is basically a goodbye video. He is letting you all know that even though the campaign is over, the movement that he created, that we created, it is going to live on. So just a forewarning, you will cry watching this video. Take a look. As you all know, we have never been just a campaign. We are a grassroots, multiracial, multi-generational movement which has always believed that real change never comes from the top on down, but always from the bottom on up. We have taken on the greed of the entire corporate elite. That struggle continues. While this campaign is coming to an end, our movement is not. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. reminded us that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. As I hope all of you know, this race has never been about me. 
I ran for the presidency because I believe that as a president, I could accelerate and institutionalize the progressive changes that we are all building together. And if we keep organizing and fighting, I have no doubt but that that is exactly what will happen. We often hear about the beauty of America, and this country is incredibly beautiful. But to me, the beauty I will remember most is in the faces of the people we have met from one corner of this nation to the other. The compassion, love, and decency I have seen in them makes me so hopeful for our future. It also makes me more determined than ever to work to create a nation that reflects those values and lifts up all of our people. Please stay in this fight with me. Let us go forward together. The struggle continues. Told you you were gonna cry. <laughs> that was uh, that was great. That made me feel better, and I don't know why it made me feel better. I know that you know the sad music and the beautiful cinematography, like it is designed to kind of evoke some sort of emotional response, but it it made me feel better, and I'm having a really bad day, and that really was great to see. And I think that this really speaks to like the importance of leadership. You know, sometimes we, you know, we are overly cynical and we get down on ourselves about what we did wrong. But when we see that, you know, just see someone say the right words that we need to hear, it's super important and it does something. It really resonates deeply. So everything that Bernie Sanders said is true. Um, this movement will continue on because regardless if we have these disagreements even ideological disagreements to an extent strategic disagreements at the end of the day the people who this movement brought together they're not just going to abandon their principles they're not going to move away from the fight for social racial and economic justice they're not going to all of a sudden abandon medicare for all because that need that necessity will never go away. It's going to be there and we will fight until we achieve that goal. So, you know, when we all feel like all hope is lost, this was so nice to see. So nice to see. So I'm glad he made this. He has absolutely nothing to gain. And what this just shows is that Bernie Sanders believed everything he was talking about, right? There's all these, you know, um, idiots in the Democratic Party who say he's an opportunist and it's all about him. He doesn't care about anyone but his, himself. Bernie Sanders is such a good person. And, you know, for all of the things that we criticized him for, not being aggressive enough, it's because he is such a sweet, gentle soul, right? And he has changed American politics forever. He may not have won the presidency, um, who knows what's going to happen if we ever get a progressive president again? I don't know. But what I do know is that he has changed American politics. 
and what he started at least should give us all hope that there's enough people that came together and made a very, very loud uh, call to the establishment and vocalized their uh, disillusionment, disillusionment with it. Um, so that was great. Just a little uh, pick-me-up, even though it made you cry, probably. Hopefully those were happy tears, but it does suck. Like, you don't have to feel bad or embarrassed about the fact that you're mourning a campaign. Like, I think that this is a very real thing. Like, to see your hopes and dreams crash and burn with a political campaign, it sucks. And this is what I told, you know, um, Andrew Yang supporters when Andrew Yang dropped out, because I know that that was such a huge movement that Andrew Yang built up, that it, it takes time to get over this sort of thing. And, you know, you're not going to have all the answers for yourself right away. You're not going to understand what's the exact thing that you have to do going forward, because you know you want to keep moving, you know you want to keep fighting. Give yourself time. You don't know what you need right now, but I think that with time, it's all going to be clear for all of us. You know, whatever that next fight is going to be, we'll figure it out and we'll all do it together. And this is super corny, but I'm going to say it anyway. I saw a tweet, and again, I, I wish that I could credit this person. They said, maybe, you know, the best thing about this campaign is that he gave all of us each other. Yeah, because without all of, you know, the other progressives that I talked to and my Twitter buds, this would be so miserable. Like, if we felt like we were experiencing the loss of this campaign alone, it would be so much worse. And just the fact that we have each other is so fucking awesome. So I love you all so much. Uh, I needed this video. And uh, hopefully you needed it too. Or if not, you know, if it helped you at all, that's awesome. It's almost impossible to comprehend what is taking place right now. Thousands of Americans are dying every single day because of COVID-19. And as this global pandemic continues on, it's affecting people that we know and love. And it's no longer just something that you see on the news. Like, this is getting really real. American lives are being lost. And it's something that is so hard to wrap your head around because it's so much devastation. The numbers are getting so high that psychologically, I think that our brain kind of... Um, at least mine does, it shuts off in a way to where I guess it, it protects us, you know, so we can maybe recover from this and move on when it's all over. But as we kind of grapple with this reality and we get more data, this virus is not impacting everyone equally. It is disproportionately taking black lives, according to data. And I read a report from Vox that was just absolutely gut-wrenching. So as Fabiola Sinius reports, as of Tuesday, black people made up 33% of cases in Michigan and 40% of deaths, despite being just 14% of the state's population. In Milwaukee County, Wisconsin, where black people represent 26% of the population, they made up almost half of the county's 945 cases and 81% of its 27 deaths, according to a ProPublica report. In Illinois, black people made up 42% of fatalities, but make up only 14.6% of the state's population. In Chicago, the data is even graver. Black people represented 68% of the city's fatalities and more than 50% of cases, but only make up 30% of the city's total population. In the South, the numbers are also grim. In Louisiana, black people accounted for more than 70% of deaths. 
in a state population that is 33% black. About 33% of the state's 512 deaths as of Tuesday morning. In the South, the numbers are also grim. In Louisiana, black people accounted for more than 70% of deaths in a state population that is about 33% black. About 33% of the state's 512 deaths as of Tuesday morning have occurred in Orleans Parish, where black people make up more than 60% of the population and where 29% of people live in poverty, according to 2018 census data. Louisiana's first teen death, also one of the first teen deaths in the nation, was that of a 17-year-old New Orleans resident, Jaquan Anderson, an aspiring NFL player, according to local reports. On Wednesday, New York, deemed the county's epicenter of coronavirus cases, finally released preliminary data of COVID-19 deaths broken down by race, with 90% reporting in the state. 18% of deaths have been black people, despite being only 9% of the population. In New York City, with 65% reporting, 28% of deaths have been black people, while the city's population is 22% black. Hispanics have made up the highest death rates in both the state and the city, 14% and 34% respectively, despite being 11% of the state population and 24% of the cities. Well before the novel coronavirus arrived at America's shores, black people across the country, regardless of socioeconomic status, have lived with chronic illnesses, long-term health conditions like diabetes and hypertension, at high rates. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Office of Minority Health, the death rate for black people is generally higher than that that of whites for heart disease, stroke, cancer, asthma, influenza, and pneumonia, diabetes, HIV, AIDS, and homicide. When combined with COVID-19 in the body, people already suffering from chronic illnesses or from comorbidity suffer the worst health outcomes. The underlying conditions increase a patient's chance of hospitalization and even death. Some health professionals also stress that we pay attention to black people with less prevalent chronic conditions like lupus and Crohn's disease or those with renal failure who can't stay home because they must go outside for treatment like dialysis as they may be more vulnerable to coronavirus too. In Detroit, where black people make up 80% of the city's population, chronic illnesses have already created a lethal storm. Detroit represents 7% of Michigan's population, but 26% of the state's infections and 25% of deaths. So, um, that is devastating. Um, I don't know what to say to that. You know, it's it's really, really tragic. People who are already vulnerable in these positions, it's not shocking that they're going to be, you know, hit the hardest by it. But when you when you kind of get it all laid out in front of you and you see the numbers, it's kind of just, it's a gut punch. Like, it's so hard to grapple with, right? Because, um, you know, th there's so much suffering going on right now that it's almost incomprehensible, you know? So, what do you do to um, help these people right now? Like, I don't know what the what the answer is. Is there a correct policy solution that we can implement? I'm trying to think through this rationally and, you know, what we can do to have a real concrete effect on people's lives. 
But I, you know, this is one of those instances where you don't really have an answer, and it's okay to admit that maybe we don't, we don't have an answer. Maybe we just do everything in our power currently to help people in need. Um, and you know that that's always right, but certainly now more than ever. So you know, when you see this, um, people who are uh, black Americans disproportionately already going to be susceptible to these types of illnesses and whatnot, and, and poverty certainly doesn't help. It just makes for such a horrible situation, and whenever we all face these types of crises, it impacts them a lot harder. And this is true for everything. Like, this is the story of life. You know, people in society who are already vulnerable are going to be the worse off whenever we have these types of crises. It doesn't matter, you know, what it is. It's always going to be worse for them. Um, hurricanes, um, terrorist attacks, global pandemics. So what we have to do is everything in our power to close all of these gaps, all of these racial disparities. And, you know, that's that's really hard to do, but there are practical solutions that we can implement as a society to try to, you know, mitigate these things. It's just a matter of, are we willing to fight? Do we care enough about these communities to fight? And, you know, I want to say instinctively yes, but we haven't seen action from lawmakers that suggests that they actually do care, that they are touched by these numbers, you know? So, um, I don't know what to say because there's no right words here, but this is really, really devastating. And whatever we can do at an individual level to minimize the pain and suffering, we have to do it. So even though you're getting um, a little bit antsy about staying home, you're feeling cabin fever, it's worth it. It will be worth it in the long run. If you stay home, we practice social distancing and self-quarantine, and it ultimately saves more lives because this can't this can't go on. This is just it's so much pain and agony for these communities and and everyone that it's just it's it's so difficult to you know uh, really even comprehend. All right, folks, we need to have a discussion about our religious friends and family members who I'm assuming will be very disappointed about the fact that they will not be able to attend Easter Sunday service as it approaches. And I think that I've convinced everyone in my family who's religious that any sort of gathering um, should not happen. That's a very bad idea. Um, and I think that most churches are closed and there won't be a religious ceremony, but even like a makeshift gathering of like 20 people, it's not a good idea. Stay home. So we all have to do our due diligence in informing them about how bad of an idea that will be. And, I, you know, I don't want to generalize about religious people. I think that most of them will abide by social distancing and uh, self-quarantine requirements. That being said, for every 1,000 religious people who are actually obeying these requirements, you've got at least one person like this. Driving out of this Ohio parking lot is a woman who just attended a church service with dozens of other people, including children. Can I ask you about your decision to go to church to be inside that building? I wouldn't be anywhere else. Aren't you concerned you could infect other people if you get sick inside? No. People who don't go to this no. church? No. I'm covered in Jesus' blood. 
I'm covered in Jesus' well, blood. Are other people who don't go to this church who you might encounter? All of these people go to this church. No, but you're going to be in places where other people I go are. to the grocery store every day. I'm in Walmart, what? Home Depot, all of those people. But you people. could get them sick from what happens They the could church. get me sick, but they're not because I'm covered in his blood. Thank you very much. I am covered in Jesus' blood. What the hell did you just say? Are we talking uh, you being covered in blood metaphorically? Literally, like, did you put blood on your body? Do we know where that came from? Is that uh, advisable? Um, and, you know, to me, like, it's still scary that these people don't care and they think that they're protected because they're religious. Um, when they gather them, spreading it amongst themselves, themselves, that's scary. But, like, the fact that she admitted she's going to Walmart, she's going to Home Depot after she's been at these large gatherings, I mean... This is incredibly, incredibly reckless. And part of the problem is that there are a lot of religious leaders in this country with high profiles and very large platforms who are basically telling them not to obey these guidelines that the CDC is recommending. Uh, now this put together a compilation, and uh, this was uh, terrifying. They don't want us to do this, but just turn around and greet two or three people. Tell them, you love them, Jesus loves them. Amen. Listen, this has to be the safest place. I said this has to be the safest place. If you cannot be safe in church, you're in serious trouble. Serious trouble. We are not stopping anything. I, I got news for you. This church will never close. The only time the church is closed is when the rapture's taking place. This Bible school is open because we're raising up revivalists, not pansies. Do you believe God will bring his people to his house to be contagious with the liars? Of course not. So welcome to the house of God, the atmosphere, everything in this house is the presence, the power of God. And in the presence of God, no virus can stand. Fear cripples you. I can't go to church today. Why? Because I think Apostle is going to have the virus. Do not fear. This virus is the spirit of God. That sounds kind of... Dum, 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 dum. So as you can see, they are not taking this very seriously, to say the least. And, uh, you know, this is this is horrifying. Uh, it makes it seem like we're doomed, right? Now, that guy who um, was the first person that you saw there, his name is Rodney Howard Brown, and he literally called COVID-19 a hoax, and he ended up getting arrested for violating Florida's social distancing rules and endangering the lives of followers. And, you know... It's funny because now they're trying to cry, oh, religious liberty. No, you were arrested in a state that's run by a Republican, Ron DeSantis. You're not arrested in a blue state. This isn't about your religious freedom being violated. This is about you potentially violating the liberty and life of other individuals. Because you go to church, you tell people it's a hoax, then they act like everything is normal, spread it, and get people killed. So this isn't about religious liberty. This is about liberty, period. You don't get to be reckless and then endanger the lives of other people. But there are other pastors who are pushing this same type of uh, bogus, irresponsible line of thinking. 
As Jason Wilson of The Guardian reports, Roy Moore, a pastor and pedophile, former Alabama Supreme Court judge and failed Trump-backed Alabama Senate candidate who lost amid allegations of sexual misconduct with underage girls, told Facebook followers he would write a letter to his fellow pastors on what he called their duty to continue church assemblies even in the midst of these trying times. Moore added, Our faith requires it, our duty demands it, and no law or government can prohibit it. Kenneth Copeland, a Texas-based prosperity gospel preacher who once defended his ownership of three private jets on the grounds that commercial flights would require him to get in a long tube with a bunch of demons, told viewers of his Victory Channel in early March that coronavirus was a weak strain of the flu and that fearing the pandemic was a sin. Fear is a spiritual force. Fear is not okay. It is sin. It is a magnet for sickness and disease. You are giving the devil a pathway to your body, Copeland said. He also criticized pastors who had suspended in-person services and moved to online streaming. I don't know what to say about this. We will get back to Kenneth Copeland in a minute here, but their idiocy is endangering the lives of everyone else. There are people who are deemed essential who don't have the choice to stay at home. Um, grocery store workers, people delivering packages, healthcare workers. So by you doing this, you're making this crisis worse. But I mean, saying that, trying to reason with them on a rational level, it doesn't really matter in actuality because they are operating on a different plane. They don't believe in, you know, the physics and um, reality of the real world, for lack of a better word. They just, they're living in a different world than us, psychologically speaking. So there's not really anything that we can do to penetrate them, which is why that sounded really bad. <laughs> there's nothing we can do to penetrate that mindset, you know, and, and get through to them is what I'm trying to say. Um, the hand gesture probably didn't help. That aside, <laughs> so bad. Um, we have to um, we have to punish them then. Arresting them for uh, saying this, inciting harm, I think that's important. And that may make me sound authoritarian, but you can't still hold services, encourage people to gather if that's literally going to get them killed. This isn't about you exercising freedom of speech or freedom of religion. All of these rights have limitations, and that limit, it really starts to take effect once you, exercising your rights, starts endangering people and infringes on their rights. Now, this is why it's important for these pastors to say the right thing, not be idiots and encourage people to, you know, um, still do these gatherings. But, you know, people are doing the right thing. Some pastors are choosing to hold virtual services, and that's still, like, Kenneth Copeland is condemning that. Like, how insane do you have to be? So we need the religious leaders, as big of charlatans as we think they are, because they are, we need them to actually be leaders in this moment and tell their congregations to do the right thing. Now, uh, Kurt Landry, he is another pastor, and he has his own radio show, because all of them do, and he's not necessarily um, taking advice from anyone except Daddy Trump, because Trump is basically an individual who God put on this earth for us to listen to, and so long as Trump is saying the right things, then they'll do the responsible thing. Take a look. But in the order of spiritual alignment, Donald J. Trump is the Cyrus above him. 
So what I'm saying to you is spiritually, if Donald J. Trump is coming out strong and decreeing that it was April the 12th, which he was doing a few weeks ago, and then I watched him right on television in the Rose Garden, it's like he was all excited, everything was going, and even the press noticed, hey, something switched in him, like a depression or an oppression came over him. And then the next thing you know, he drops the 12th, they add the 30 days on, and that's coming back from, from the different counselors, not just uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci. So basically what this tells me is that so long as the smart people are able to get through to Donald Trump, then a lot of the, you know, chud followers, the biggest cultists, the bootlickers will follow his lead. So it's really important that, you know, people like Dr. Fauci continue to have a really strong presence in Trump's administration and influence him to do the right thing. Because the minute Trump starts talking foolishly about having packed churches on Easter, his cultists are going to follow. Um, now, even if you're following social distancing guidelines, it's still important that we all think about this in very practical, realistic terms. We're not talking about fairy tale bullshit and religion. We have to be realistic. People have to know the underlying causes from a scientific standpoint about COVID-19. But on a news channel, Fox News, uh, Franklin Graham explained how COVID-19 is happening because of sin. Well, uh, I imagine, though, that you get questions, given the number of Americans that the, the, thousands have already died, you know, do, you, you must get questions like, why would God allow this kind of thing to happen? Well, I, I don't think it's God uh, planned for this to happen. It's because of the sin that's in the world, uh, Judge. Um, man has turned his back on God. We have sinned against him. And we need to ask for God's forgiveness. And that's what Easter is all about. It's about God so loving the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Uh, he didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And if we put our faith and trust in him, uh, he'll forgive our sins and he'll heal our hearts and he'll change the course of our lives. And this, this pandemic uh, this is a result of a, a fallen world, a world that has uh, turned its back on God. And well, so I would encourage people to pray and just let's ask God, let's ask God for help. I just want to remind you again that that conversation took place on the number one news network in America. He just said that the reason why we're all dealing with this global pandemic is because of sin. Okay, you see, this is when we have to acknowledge that these people are too far gone. Nothing that I say will get through to them. You can't explain how, you know, <laughs> these types of things transmit because it doesn't matter. They're not living in the real world. They are delusional. They're delusional, which is why when you try to explain to them the necessity of social distancing, it doesn't matter because they think, you know, even if they acknowledge that the virus is real, that COVID-19 is real, they don't believe in actual solutions like medication and healthcare. Uh, if you're Kenneth Copeland, he believes that he can heal you through the television. Uh, and I'm not kidding. Take a look. Put your hand on that television set. Yes, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. 
He received your healing. Yes. Now. Say it, I take it. I take it. I have it. I have it. It's mine. It's, it's mine. mine. I thank you and praise you for it. Yes. Lord. And I forgive if I have aught against any. I forgive. And I praise you that I'm well and whole. I praise you that I'm well and whole. Yes. According to the word of God. According to the word of God. I'm healed. Yes. And I consider not my own body. Yes. I consider yes. not my own body. I consider not symptoms in my body. I consider not symptoms in my body. But only that which God has promised. Only, only that, that which God, which God has Only that what the Word has said. Only that, that what the Word has And by His stripes I was healed. And by His stripes I am healed now. I'm not the sick trying to get healed. I'm the healed and the devil's trying to give me the flu. Right. Or whatever else kind of thing he's trying. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> healed and well. Yes. In the sweet name, name of, Jesus. of Jesus. Glory to God. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. I am 99% convinced that that man is a reptilian. He is not a human being. He is a reptilian. Frog. We see you. The aliens are here. That's evidence of it. <laughs> so this is a problem with religion. I think that religiosity in and of itself isn't problematic. And so far as you're able to have reasonable, logical, rational discussions about what cause and effect is in real concrete terms, like it's not that sin causes COVID-19. It is, you know, the fact that viruses exist and we have actual mitigation tactics that we can use that will reduce them. Praying isn't going to reduce this virus. It may make us feel better, but it's not going to reduce this virus. And I'm sorry, but God doesn't exist. So um, if you think that praying is going to make it go away, it's not. Now, you can use prayer if it makes you feel better. But the fact remains that there's no evidence of God, but there is evidence that this virus does exist, and it's not a hoax. And we need people, all people, religious people, to acknowledge and take it seriously, because if they don't take it seriously, then everyone else will suffer because of it. Self-quarantine will be extended because of people like this. Now, I want to stress that it's not all religious people who view the world like this. I know religious people who are very, very rational and pragmatic and intelligent, and they don't view the world as these wackadoos do. Nonetheless, there's a lot of people who are just too far gone, who you cannot get through to no matter how hard you try, because arguing with them in, you know, scientific or even relatable terms doesn't matter because they operate on an entirely different plane than we do. They think about this in terms of spirituality and what Jesus wants. So all I say is after watching all of this, God help us all. All right, that's all that I've got for you guys today. I wish that I could say the show was better. Um, this was just a shit episode. <laughs> it was demoralizing. It was uh, a lot of bad news. I wish I could offer you better news, but I'm really sorry. I don't have that currently. I can't control the news cycle, but hopefully soon we can actually 
have some semblance of normalcy again. But you know what? If anything, just know that we're all in this together. As corny as that sounds, we're dealing with this together and you're not alone in wishing that we could get back to normal. So uh, that's all that I've got. Love you all so much. See you next week.